So I says to Mabel, I says, Red leather, yellow leather, and hubbub, hubbub. We all speak French. That was all very interesting and horrifying. <laughs> Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's all steaks and ketchup and hell fellow well met. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. Can't we just be in the moment? No. We're married. Yeah. Those days are over. Yeah. Now it's all taxes and people asking us when we're having a baby and such. Boy, we really need to do our taxes. Well, listen, it's <laughs> only February whatever day this is. That's true. 15th. We've got two whole months. Hooray. Uh, welcome back, cousins, to yet another exciting recap of Downton Abbey. This is episode seven. It sure seven is. Seven of eight. So we're in the home stretch here. That's right, we are. Believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, we have... Uh, no new countries to report still, and it probably will be a while, uh, if ever, before we get another one. We, we, we're, we're getting pretty maxed out. Uh, so we just thought we'd take a minute to let everybody know, who might be curious, what our top ten, our top ten countries are, who are uh, where the most cousins reside. I'm excited. Yes. Number one, by a long shot, the United States. Not surprising. Not at all this surprising. Is a pretty, uh, this is a pretty Yankee-style podcast. <laughs> That's right. Much like a Yankee-style pot roast. <laughs> sure, yeah. Second place is Canada. America light. Yeah, indeed. Uh, third place, the United Kingdom. Home of Downton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. They probably got their own podcast with all crumpets and such. That's true. That airs several months earlier. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Uh, after that, we've got Australia. So, uh, again, it's fairly America-ish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, part of the Dominion. Commonwealth? What do they call it? And then next, we have Germany, our top non-Anglo country. Interesting. Uh, just behind Germany is Ireland. Woo! <laughs> yes. Aaron go bra! That's right. All those monkeys really love this podcast. They do. <laughs> it's the right monkey. <laughs> uh, then we have Spain, France... Italy. So, sorry, Italian cousins. Yeah. We're only ripping on you because the Dowager Countess did it first. Uh, you know, so, uh, scusi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, our 10th country is New Zealand. Fantastic. That's right. Home of Peter Jackson. That's right. He's probably our biggest listener. Home of Peter Jackson and people who are sick and tired of hearing about Peter Jackson, <laughs> I assume. All right. So, moving on to our cousins... <gasps> Of the week. We actually, we had a tie. Ooh. Because two separate cousins wrote in with regard to, uh, you know, 1920s reproductive procedure. Wow. Well, uh, it's just like the Women's Olympic downhill in here. Yes. It finished in a tie. It was oh, historic. okay. Yeah. I <laughs> could give two shits about the Olympics. Yeah, but you don't. I, I don't. I just, look, I'm, you know. No, that's, that's fine. I read Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, and ever since then, I just, I can't get worked up about it anymore. Yeah. Even though I know figure skating and gymnastics are only a very small part of what goes on, but... <laughs> Still. So, first up, we have a letter from Cousin Heather. She says, Dearest Cousins, while listening to your latest episode recap, I also realized how odd it was that Edith had to wait days for her pregnancy results from her doctor. That is the kind of thing that is very common for a lot of our modern medical tests, but it doesn't make sense in her situation. So I did a brief search for the history of pregnancy tests and found this interesting website through the Office of National Institute of Health History called the Thin Blue Line, and the link for that is on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Yeah, it's actually already up. We yep. don't have to promise. <laughs> 
I've uh, I've learned a thing or two. <laughs> Basically, it agrees with your assessment that in the early 1920s, pregnancies were determined by signs and symptoms like morning sickness and missed periods. 1927 was when doctors first started actually testing for pregnancy by injecting a woman's urine into an immature rat or rabbit and seeing if the animal suddenly developed mature ovaries or went into heat a few days later. Just uh, so you know, the face Tom is making is <laughs> hilarious and completely appropriate. Yeah. Like, maybe just wait a month or two and find out that way. Uh, no, Tom. They Look, it was 1927. They needed to know right then. <laughs> All right. This test was apparently never very popular, <laughs> but was the only one around until the 1960s. Well, all right. I'm thinking Baron Julian was playing fast and loose with the timeline here, and this test was why Edith had to wait a few days for her results. Mm. I know this is getting long, so the last interesting tidbit I'll mention from this site is that the ancient Egyptians apparently had a urine-based test that modern scientists claim would pick out 70% of pregnancies. And the Middle wow. Ages had guys who called themselves piss prophets who'd study and probably taste your pee. Ugh. Anyways, absolutely love your podcast and can't wait to hear about this week's episode. Thanks for all the hard work you put into doing this, Cousin Heather. Yes. Thank you, Heather. And thank you for that uh, always needed reminder that history is disgusting. Absolutely. (laughs) So next we have a letter from Cousin Olivia who writes, Greetings, cousins Kelly and Tom. Thanks so much for your podcast. It is a highlight of my week. Please repeat for us cousins how we can find your Amazon wish list to express our gratitude. Done and done also on Facebook and Twitter. Oh, So on top of things. I have learned that if we post this thing and I don't post these links in advance, (laughs) it is just not going to (laughs) happen. Other cousins have recently written in about breastfeeding endometriosis and fibroids. And after Edith's genius doctor confirmed that she was indeed (laughs) pregnant... Kelly mentioned wanting to research pregnancy testing. Edith's predicament brings up a more controversial topic that I wanted to write about before your recap of episode six, but I didn't get a chance. Then episode seven served it right up. I'm not trying to inflame an abortion debate, but here are some brief notes on the history of abortion according to what else? Wikipedia and the wider internets. Women have attempted to end unwanted pregnancy since ancient times. Over the centuries, any of the following have been used to cause abortion. Abortifacient preparations ranging from herbs to ammonia to opium to lead to turpentine to mercury to hairs from animals taken in teas, potions, or orally. And abortifacient is something that induces spontaneous miscarriage. Pessaries, vaginal suppositories, or douching with noxious chemicals. Violent purgatives, laxatives. Very hot baths or sitting over a pot of steam, heavy lifting, extreme exertion. Controlled falling down a flight of stairs. Jumping with heels reaching buttocks at every jump and shaking. Enemas, abdominal pressure, fasting, bloodletting, riding animals, veterinary medicines. Surgical or quasi-surgical methods involving some sort of cervical dilation and curatage, scraping, vacuuming, aspiration, or other uterine evacuation have been in existence since the 2nd century AD, although not commonplace until the 19th century when anesthesia made such methods possible. Despite risks of infection, hemorrhage, or uterine perforation, scarring or damage for much of human history, and possibly to the present day. Such methods have been less dangerous to women than childbirth itself, which still kills millions of women worldwide. It kills more women in the U.S. than you would think, around 650 per year, or 21 per 100,000 live births. As an aside, the U.S. ranks very low among developed countries in this statistic. In recent years, maternal death rates have increased, which is largely attributable to the increase in C-section delivery. But that is another topic. (laughs) In the absence of medical personnel or equipment, 
Women have used candles, glass rods, pen holders, curling irons, spoons, sticks, knives, catheters, and the proverbial coat hanger to attempt to penetrate or dilate the cervix and scrape the uterus. Uh, and aside from me, ha! Yeah. Only in the last quarter century have effective hormonal methods of abortion been invented and become commonplace. Hormonal methods can prevent implantation of a fertilized egg or cause the uterus to shed its lining without any physical invasion of the uterus. Up through the turn of the 19th century, abortion was generally not thought of as murder or a sin before the quickening or the first movement of the fetus in the uterus, which usually happens around the 14th week of pregnancy before the pregnancy is visible to others. During the 19th century, movements to criminalize the procedure gained strength. In Britain, the Offenses Against the Person Acts of 1837 and 1861 made abortion illegal. Despite bans on both sides of the Atlantic, demand for the procedure persisted in the face of unreliable contraception. An advertisement for abortifacients was disguised but open and common in newspapers. And what seems to the modern feminist an odd flip-flop of progressive attitudes, many early women suffragists were opponents of abortion. Abortion was legalized in the UK in 1967. It seems that Edith, as a woman of means, was headed for a surgical procedure with a quote-unquote real doctor. Historically, invasive abortion methods were often carried out by persons without standard medical training. This would probably have been among the safest of scenarios, although in the event of an adverse situation, she'd have fared no better than any other woman with a less professional medical abortion, given that antibiotics were literally just being discovered in the 1920s and were not in widespread use until the 1940s. This is why Aunt Rosamond said that it was dangerous. It was. We can ponder whether the now-forgotten Ethel considered aborting her bastard. As a woman without means, she may not have felt that she had a remotely safe option. Hope that saves you guys some time in case you were wondering about this. Thanks again for all the entertainment you provide, Cousin Olivia. Thank you, Cousin Olivia. Yes. That did indeed save me untold hours of research. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and I mean, it really is fascinating. And, you know, the quote-unquote abortion debate aside, I think we can all agree that the demonization of the sexualization of women without any sort of appropriate counterpoint for men mm-hmm. who cause unwanted pregnancies along right. with their partners is the reason that so many women want to terminate their pregnancies right. and lack of appropriate education about, uh, you know, contraceptive methods, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it's just fascinating to me that, you know, both abortion and pregnancy tests, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it's something that people want to know about. I right. mean, for centuries, right. people didn't even know how babies got made. Mm-hmm. And it's just like devastating to me to hear about the lengths that women will go to right. because if their reputation was ruined, their mm-hmm. reputation, mm-hmm. not their biological function, right? because that could be ruined, their life and the life of their child would be ruined. Mm-hmm. And I just find that awful. Yeah. So like, get with it, society. You're horrible. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, thank you very much, Cousins of the Week, for uh, writing in and giving us a little bit of context. Absolutely. And I think we can all uh, breathe a sigh of relief that we live in an age of modern medicine. Here, here. Uh, also, United States, get on that uh, dying in childbirth statistic. Yeah. Shouldn't be happening here. Agreed. And with that, I think it's time to jump into our recap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do want to pause for a minute for our friends at the Viking River Cruises. <laughs> they say we can travel with the eyes of a child. And I'm just curious, how much is that going to set me back? Uh, they're third world children. It's not that expensive. I just, I keep thinking of, uh, you know, the Catholics in the audience will appreciate this. The iconography <laughs> of St. Lucy 
who had uh, her eyes plucked out for being a Christian. Right. Uh, I keep seeing, you know, some fat Midwestern tourist in, you know, Germany just holding on a stem the <laughs> eyes of some poor child. Well, I was, I was going to say for the non-Catholics in the audience, you can think about Pan's Labyrinth, but then I realized that the audience for Pan's Labyrinth is probably somewhat heavily Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent point. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's well respected. Yeah, yeah. So you never know. Oh, indeed. All right, so, uh, the episode begins. A telegraph is doing its telegraph thing, and a guy on a motorbike is driving up to Downton, and it's like, oh no, the Titanic sank again. Titanic 2! Now on Sci Fi. <laughs> or that episode of Doctor Who with Kylie Minogue. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out fake Patrick was real, and he was on the Titanic, and it sank again. <laughs> Man. Everything old is new again. <laughs> Downstairs, you can hear uh, various servants bustling around. You can, in fact, hear them all saying red leather, yellow leather, and hub, 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 hub. Bates walks into Mrs. Hughes' parlor and says in a very baffled tone, his lordship is going to America. Mrs. Hughes scoffs, and I wish she said, he never is, because <laughs> I love when Mrs. Hughes says that. Yes. But uh, apparently it's true. Something has happened to McGee's brother, right. uh, who was in some predicament Indeed. in the previous episode, possibly the teapot dome scandal. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do they need Lord Grantham for? Uh, we don't know. Does Mackell need to lose a lot of money for tax purposes? Because he's <laughs> right. pretty much great at that. That, that could be it. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're going to trot him out as a character witness. Like, you know, in, uh, you know, McGee's brother's defense. I guess <laughs> right. he'll have to have a name. Mac H. <laughs> His name's Harold. Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah, Mac, Mac H. H. So Mac H, you know, how could he possibly have not been expected to go down this path? He's related by marriage. Yeah, to- no, that's that's a brilliant plan. Lord Grantham has such a good history as a character witness. <laughs> <laughs> he does not. <laughs> At any rate, Mrs. Hughes says that Mr. Bates is going to have to go as his ballot, and Bates insists that he cannot leave Anna, not now, which, I don't know, maybe he should. You kind of seem like you're the fly in the ointment at this point, I feel like she might have a better time if she could not be worried about you for a little while. Because that does seem to be her at least primary, because you have to wonder how much of the actual assault and trauma has she been able to process Mm -hmm. and move beyond because she can't get past right worrying about him yeah you know i just really want her to go on some sort of women's retreat maybe she can hook up with valentine from parades end (laughs) and they can just you know go and like wear white dresses and have their hair cut short and you know work the table at various tea socials (laughs) That, that sounds good it does sound good yeah in McGee's bedroom, Lord Grantham is very upset. He says, it's not fair. And McGee agrees that it is not fair. Uh, he says that his being there won't make any difference, but McGee says it seems that they obviously think that it will make a difference. Um, apparently, yeah, they think having an English Earl around will make the Senate committee look more favorably on McH. Because America loves the British aristocracy so much. Uh, I mean, there's... We fought several wars, (laughs) specifically to the opposite point. That was a while ago, and (laughs) as the existence of this podcast proves... Our attitudes have changed. Touche. 
Well, see, and, and Lord Grantham says that he knows plenty of people with English earls as relatives who belong in jail. But the point is, Lord Grantham, that they are not in jail. Yeah. Possibly because they have English earls as relatives. Uh, your own son-in-law, Tom <laughs> Branson, for example. Yeah. Uh, he's yeah. not related by blood, but Mr. Bates certainly would still be in jail if he wasn't, uh, employed yeah. by a British earl. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, plenty of people in your own life should probably be in jail. <laughs> it's possible. Mary should be in jail for killing that Turkish guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matthew should be in jail just on basic principle. <laughs> O'Brien. Oh man, O'Brien, yeah. Yeah. Thomas should definitely be in Thomas jail. Thomas should absolutely they be in jail. They tried to arrest him. <laughs> and a British Earl stopped them from arresting him. Well, sir, we've caught you red-handed stealing, but as this British <laughs> Earl has come and said, this shall not stand, uh, we are required by the Crown to let you go. <laughs> In any case, Lord Grantham says he supposes they've made their decision. Uh, which, like, what decision? Like, that he has, like, can't he just be like, fucking no? I mean, I guess he can't. Yeah. He has, like, ruined their finances (laughs) on a number of occasions. True. Uh, Mary's having it her breakfast in her room in a in a segment that I'd like to call bitching at breakfast with Mary Crawley because <laughs> man she is awful in the morning. Yeah, she is. She just she is terrible like right. and I say this as someone who is awful <laughs> in the mornings. Uh it's a little bit better now that I have, you know, you. Yes. But man, mm-hmm. don't try to talk about me in the mornings with my mother and my brothers because the whole conversation will just be them going <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I really enjoy Lady Mary. Yes. I identify with her. (laughs) So Mrs. Hughes is in there, though, uh, as Mary sits there elegantly having her toast with her beautiful duvet. (laughs) I really like Mary's bedroom set. Yes. She's telling Mrs. Hughes that she can't stop Lord Grantham from going to America. And Mrs. Hughes is like, yeah, duh. Listen (laughs) to my words. She's saying it will be very hard on Anna to lose support for Mr. Bates at this time. Again. You know, Mrs. Hughes, you could take her, and then you and Anna and Valentine could all hang out. Did you maybe pull Anna aside and ask what she thought before going to Lady Mary? Because it doesn't look like you did. Why on earth, Tom, should a rape victim be given any agency or say what happens to her? But Mrs. Hughes is cool. I know she is, babe, but she's also constrained by the, uh, you know, mores of the time. Fair enough. She thinks she's doing her best. She does. Mary says that she hopes that Downton are good employers, but they expect to get what they pay for, and Bates is Lord Grantham's valet. Queen bitch. Yeah. Bow down. Yeah. Don't even, uh, look out, Beyonce. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's true. Uh, Mrs. Hughes says that this is a special circumstance, and Mary asks why. Mrs. Hughes says, I'll never tell. <laughs> and Mary says that if she wants her help, she must know the facts, and Mrs. Hughes obviously buckles and says, all right, I'll tell now. Yeah. Fine, Michael Duckless. <laughs> You've weaseled it out of me. In the always popular boot room. Boot room! (laughs) uh, Bates is telling Anna that he's not going to go, no matter what. And Anna says that he would lose his job and all for her and go home and pack. And then she walks out of the hall and cries. Interestingly, 
a cousin wrote in, and I apologize, nameless cousin, for not remembering your name, mm-hmm. and suggests that Anna has been in the boot room, and so many scenes have happened in the boot room, because that is where Mr. Green dragged Anna to rape her, in mm-hmm. fact. Uh, I would have to go back and, like, rewatch that, which I'm not super into right now. Right, yeah. Uh, but it, uh, it's a, uh, yeah. interesting, uh, an interesting thought. Yeah. And if so, well done, Baron Fellows. No. Like, kind of. <laughs> right. Well, that's the most we ever mean. Yeah. By well done, Baron Fellows. Yeah, like, maybe. <laughs> right. You might not be a complete waste of space. <laughs> Up in Lord Grantham's room, Mary is asking him not to take Bates to America, and he says that the Americans have a uniform for every activity known to man, says the English Earl. Right. Like, you. Who runs a country estate. Right. Changes multiple times with, a day. Yeah. Like, with aspirations to be like it was before the war. <laughs> right. Don't even. I mean, now I will say the Americans had a bit more in terms of like sport hmm. and outdoor activities. Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly, because we did cover this way back when. Yeah, the differences yeah. in American dress versus British dress. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I think, you know, the United States was decimated slightly less yeah. than Britain as oh, far definitely. as the male population goes by the war. Right, right. So it stands to reason that their social, uh, their social customs didn't take quite the drubbing quite mm-hmm. so quickly. Mm-hmm. Mary says that Thomas had been Lord Grantham's valet when Bates was in prison. <laughs> right. Remember when Bates was in murder prison? Oh, I do. Uh, and that Thomas will do fine. Lord Grantham doesn't think that Thomas would want to go. Mary says, why wouldn't he? All those handsome stewards strutting down the boat deck. <laughs> Lord Grantham <laughs> is horrified. And he immediately turns around and says, don't be vulgar. And wants to know what she knows of such matters. And Mary says, I've been married. I know everything. <laughs> and she's completely bluffing. Right. I'm like, you were married for like a hot minute. <laughs> right. Like, you didn't even get to anal. Right. And she's like, I, I, I suppose they just rub their penises together or something. I can't really imagine. <laughs> uh, anyway, but she, you know, it's a solid bluff. Yeah, yeah. Because Lord Grantham wants an explanation. Mary tells him that she can't provide it, but promises that he would agree with her. These people are all so bad at secret keeping. This is true. Like... They're all just so desperate for someone to weasel it out of them, which I guess is a pretty typical soap opera thing. Yeah, and also a bit of a human nature. I like, guess that's true. We, we all have a we all want to share information. I mean, like, said it's the person basic. who just recently admitted on this podcast that she's terrible at keeping secrets. <laughs> right. Only about myself, though. Well, fair enough. I can keep other people's secrets just fine. I'm glad to hear it. Well, you should be, <laughs> considering what you've done. <laughs> Look, cousins, I can't explain. But if you knew, you'd agree with me. Uh, Bates rolls in nonchalantly with a bag that Lord Grantham has been looking for. And Lord Grantham tells him that Thomas will be replacing him. He says that Mary has persuaded him, although he doesn't know why. And he heads out because the Dowager Countess will arrive soon. Although upon the first time I watched this, I thought he meant that Mackell was coming. Right, because he said your Your grandmother. grandmother. Which is rarely how they refer to her. Right. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not Mac L. Right. Much to the dismay of literally everyone. <laughs> Indeed. Bates asks Mary what she's been told, and Mary says that Mrs. Hughes told her that Anna was attacked by some ruffian, and Mary is visibly, like, right. reeling from this. I mean, she must have gone immediately yeah. from bitching at breakfast well, I mean, to bitching at dad. that day. There was no, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 
which means Anna must have dressed her. Yeah. Like, so that must have been awkward. Yeah. Anyway, so Bates says, you know, yes, that's what happened while he sat upstairs enjoying the music. And that, I just want to say, that really crystallized for me what's been annoying me about Bates so much in this whole thing, is that for Bates, the story of Anna getting raped is a story about Bates. Mm -hmm. He is the protagonist. It's something that happened to him. Mm -hmm. And it's now his job to deal with the problem. It's not a story about Anna. I mean, again, Cousins, his face. <laughs> it's white hot with rage. Yeah. Uh, no, and I agree, but I <laughs> I find it uh, provincial that you're so <laughs> shocked I'm not about saying, this. I'm not I saying mean, I'm shocked. Welcome to the reality of every woman listening to this podcast. That's fine. Because it's well, not just men. Right. You know, everyone who's experienced but, this. Okay. Right. But what I would say is what the thing about it is that if I felt like that this was showing this as that he was in the wrong to be okay. feeling that way. And it's not clear to me that the show isn't at least somewhat on his side in that belief. What I will also say, though, is I think since Vera Bates was introduced, again, would have to go back and watch things. Sure. Probably don't have the time. Indeed. But like... I think Bates is presented as a more ambiguous character the longer the series goes on okay. than he has been in the past. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, he forged that Mosley signature. Right. So it's like and, he's and- he's got this sort of – he's got this – I mean, he is a man who's been to prison. Right. I mean, the whole point of not going to prison – you know, sort of from the, the landed aristocracy's perspective <laughs> is to not be one of those people. Right. No right. matter how useful one of those people might be. Yeah. And, you know, we did feel for a long time that he maybe did kill Vera Bates. Uh, I'm still not totally sure. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, well, I guess unless he, you know, he learned forgery in prison. So. Well, that was what was implied. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. Point being... I think Bates has been shaded in and it, well, and also not only that, if you remember early, early on when Thomas was trying to frame Bates for stealing that wine, right, right. That like, that was so ridiculous. But <laughs> I mean, Bates did get arrested for, you know, drunk and disorderly true. and beat his wife. Yeah. Like that's the person that Bates used to be. This is true. So, I mean, this is also, you know, Anna's enacting this whole like bad boy situation. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it's not gone into in great detail because mm-hmm. we are, we are definitely supposed to be rooting for them. Right. But I think it is more ambiguous than we frequently give it credit for that that may be the case and i think i think we both agree that it's brendan coyle is not maybe the best vehicle he's really not yeah he's just he just doesn't emote much like everything just seems like it's got the same urgency right exactly everything's just very lackadaisical yeah and he yeah yeah anyway at any rate uh mary tells Bates that it's not his fault or Anna's, which we're sure does not make an impression upon Bates whatsoever. Yeah. The Dowager Countess comes in the front door. Which, I hate this outfit she's wearing, by the way. Okay. This outfit is terrible. Okay. It makes her look like a cast member from Zoobly Zoo. (laughs) 
Wow. Well, it's got this weird tufty hat. And then she's wearing one of those horrible, like, polonaise things that makes her boobs look like like a million miles wide. uh, Anyway. Yeah. No, that's fine. Bad form, Peter. I just wasn't expecting a Zoobly Zoo reference. Nobody ever is. It's like the (laughs) Spanish Inquisition. Uh, But she is explaining to Carson that she came to wish Lord Grantham good luck. Uh, Carson says that he's upstairs as Rose walks in, uh, says that everyone else is in the library. The Dowager Countess greets Rose while coughing and asks Carson for some water. So, ominous. Aside, you are getting all the really short scenes. No, it's, uh, I'm sure it'll even out. <laughs> In the library, Blake, Napier, and Branson are hanging out with Edith, and they're all saying, okay, well, whenever Mary's not here, we should all be asking, where's Mary? <laughs> right. I just found this scene so odd because, like, Edith is, like, hanging out having a good time. And I'm like, why are you not in the Baron Fellows uh, approved sackcloth and ash portion of this episode? <laughs> right. I mean, don't just, worry. It's uh, in the mail. Oh, it is. I just was like, so I says to Mabel, I said. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. The Dowager Countess asks if they're disturbing the conclave. Like, shut up. <laughs> Branson says they're discussing the pigs. Who are arriving as their master departs. Robert Grantham, pig master. (laughs) There can only be one. (laughs) I know that's the Highlander, but every time I think of the (laughs) Beastmaster... As far as I know, there was only one Beastmaster. That's I mean, true. You know. <laughs> and now I just want to watch the credits to Beastmaster over and over and over again. Cousins, if you've not done this, <laughs> breathtaking. <laughs> Napier says it's sad that Lord Grantham has to miss the delivery of the pigs, and the Dowager Countess asks Mr. Blake if the pigs are a good idea. He says, God, why is this guy like the Sphinx? <laughs> he can never give a straight answer. It's true. He says that the real question is whether Lord Grantham and Mary appreciate what they're taking on. And the Dowager Countess says it sounds like he thinks they aren't. And Edith says he's not under Mary's spell. Wrong. Well, look, she's <laughs> under a lot of stress. She, is. she needs a win right here. <laughs> Carson announces that Isabel's there and uh, gives the Dowager Countess her water. Isabel asks if she's feeling hot. Isabel is quite warm after walking up from the village. The Dowager Countess says that she is feeling warm, although she did not walk. Isabel thinks it's very noble of Robert to circumnavigate the world to help Harold. It's a nerd note. He's really only going about one-seventh of the way around the world. Right? It's not that far. The Atlantic has been one of the most heavily trafficked routes ever since it was discovered. This is true. Anyway, the Dowager Countess disagrees that it is... Uh, noble, which right. I and you clearly agree. <laughs> right. In Hughes's parlor, Carson is filled with dudgeon. <laughs> at being... I feel like his bowel movements are just oh, dudgeon again. <laughs> he is stunned that Bates doesn't want to go. <laughs> uh, Hughes says that it's not that exactly; it's just that he can't for private reasons could it be because he oh i don't know has a limp like come on you could totally make something up here (laughs) that's right americans don't allow cripples on transatlantic voyages (laughs) carson asks bad for our image (laughs) carson asks if they're running a rental house or a home for the walking wounded uh yeah they are yeah his name is bates yeah again (laughs) cripple definitely have you forgotten because you have Uh, you know not to mention ivy True enough. She is shell shocked. <laughs> Just by light. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, and Molesley, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you're basically like, you know, a halfway home for idiot servants at this point. 
Uh, he says that it's no good shouting at her because his lordship has decided. Carson strongly suspects that Hughes knows why he has decided that. And Hughes says that I'm sorry you're suspicious, but I believe we both have the personality to overcome it. And then sits down firmly. And Carson huffs his way out of the room. I mean, he literally goes, Hur! Like, there's a lot of that kind of vocalization in this episode. Yeah, It'll come true. up again later. Also, you're like a regular little radio play with your Hughes and Carson impressions. I'm impressed. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> Thomas is packing a suitcase in some room where Jimmy Kent is because, uh, you know, he has no work to do on this day when part of the staff is leaving. That's right. Thomas says he woke up wondering what he'd be doing, and it turns out he's going to New York uh, rather than pointlessly badgering Baxter. Which is what he had booked in from like three to five. Well, and this is what I really <laughs> don't understand. Like, if you contrast this scene with the next scene that he's in, where he's like bother, you know, ominously right. threatening Miss Baxter. Yeah, because he seems so happy. You know, like, I'm like, yeah, you're you're lit- you're the underbutler. You're yeah. the number three person in this house. Yeah. Like, why are you being a dick all the time to this Miss Baxter? Right. Anyway, Jimmy Kent envies Thomas and asks how they know they'll get a ship. And Thomas says there's always empty cabins. You know, uh, he's heard it from Hotwire, the telegraph service that you book empty cabins on <laughs> ships with. <laughs> That's true. I can also back that up as I got three calls prior to seven this morning from somebody trying to fill empty cabins on something. I, anyway. Oh, he yelled at them. Yeah, I did. I missed the first two. Well, yeah, like because it, it rang twice from the same number the third time i was like fine i'll answer this maybe you know somebody i know is dead or something Mm -hmm. and it's just like hi mr schneider am i pronouncing that correctly and i was like yes and we're like we're trying to fill some empty cabins on some cruise ships and oh my god oh because you have a dayton prefix on your phone still so they thought it was 10 yeah and they anyway oh my god so fuck those guys yeah Anyway, Thomas says that he and Lord Grantham will go to Liverpool and see what's available. Jimmy Kent wishes it were him going, and Thomas asks if he miss I- if he would miss Ivy. Jimmy Kent says she were a waste of money and effort, which is definitely how you want to think about relationships. Right. And then Thomas says he's sure something's just around the corner, and then Jimmy Kent hopes he gets a move on before he does something stupid. Like rape Ivy? Like what would you do? Uh quit maybe- your job? Maybe uh, finally give in and make a pass at Thomas. He obviously has a crush on him. Uh, well, yeah. It is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, that is a bi-curious character. <laughs> uh, well, and I mean, honestly, like, Thomas is so conniving. Like, he would be like, oh, yeah, you know, invest, you know, this amount of <laughs> time and effort in me and money, and uh, I will give you these sexual favors in return. Like, <laughs> right. Thomas seems like he'd be very into a commerce-based relationship. And Jimmy Kent is seemingly a, has a past as a gigolo. Right? Like. Or wanting a future as one. Right. So, like, get on it. Yeah. Jack Ross is doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thomas says that when he gets back, he wants Jimmy Kent happy, healthy, and courting a girl from the village, which I'm sure is a lie. <laughs> We've all told that lie to a friend. <laughs> no, really. I hope you find someone else. Yeah. Uh, McGee tells Lord Grantham that his going overseas to save her brother is an act of real love, and she cherishes him for it. And Lord Grantham says that that will keep him warm as he crosses the raging seas. Uh, McGee tells him to kiss her, and he does. Uh... Why am I on board with this relationship again all of a sudden? I don't know. They had, like, in that earlier argument they had, or just, you know, yeah. when he was upset about having to go, that's like a real ass married person thing. Yeah. Like, he's mad. She's like, you just need to be mad. Right. 
and I know, know you're gonna go and like know do what he's needs not to be mad done. at her. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it was well. Not that I intend to stop mocking him, but oh, Lord no. Grantham hasn't actually screwed anything up this season that That's I can think true. of. Perhaps the deaths of like a statistical, <laughs> a statistically significant number of the people that he purportedly loves has convinced him to uh, slow his roll a little bit on frittering away their inheritance. <laughs> no. Lord Grantham and McGee walk outside where everybody is gathered round to see him off. Uh, Blake tells Grantham that they'll be staying a few more weeks if he doesn't mind, and Lord Grantham says he doesn't as long as they make themselves useful. Uh, Napier says they will because he's kind of a toady. Lord Grantham tells Edith to be strong, that Gregson must be out there somewhere, and Edith reminds us all that his firm has already sent somebody to look for him. And besides, she says, I'm making a new Gregson right now, so... <laughs> He'll be faster, stronger, less likely to go missing overseas. <laughs> So Lord Grantham says that McGee will give Edith anything she needs. He then says goodbye to the Dowager, who tells him not to let those Yankees drive him mad. Uh, we're very nice over here. Come on now. Uh, Don't worry, Lord Grantham. Our American accents will keep you warm. <laughs> Lord Grantham asks Mary why she's preoccupied. She says, am I? I'm afraid my mind was on other things. So you were preoccupied. That's, that's Maybe she's actually secretly, like, real dumb. <laughs> it's not out of the question. Anyway, uh, she kisses him goodbye and tells him to enjoy himself. He wishes her luck with the pigs. He then tells Rose that he is leaving her in charge of fun. She says, mission understood, Captain. He then says a very perfunctory goodbye to Isabel uh, and then tells Branson to look after all my women folk, especially Isis. <laughs> Like, he says that. That's not a joke we made up. Proof positive <laughs> that Baron Julian Fellows is listening to this very podcast. That's right. Baron Fellows, please write us a letter. <laughs> we don't exactly apologize for all the things we've said about you, <laughs> but we'd love to chat. Yeah, yes. Thomas tells Baxter that he'll expect a full report when he returns very threateningly and mostly overhears him doing so. Uh, Thomas asks Baxter, Thomas asks Baxter why he's going instead of Bates. She doesn't know. He says that's what she's going to find why would out. She know? Uh, anyway, we like, just, I know we just said, but Jesus Christ, Thomas. And I wish I know what her deal was. Like, does she have an embarrassing dolphin tattoo that she doesn't <laughs> want anyone to know about? What's that? <laughs> uh, anyway, Lord Grantham and Thomas get into the cars and drive off. And the Dowager tells Isabel that that's a relief. Are you still laughing about Clone High? I am still laughing about Clone High. Keep going, keep going. Uh, As the Dowager's feeling rather ill and was afraid she would keel over, Isabel asks if the Dowager wants Isabel to ride back with her, and the Dowager says that that is the very last thing that she wants and tells Carson to get her a car. Going back into the foyer, Mary thanks Mr. Blake for seeing Lord Grantham off, and uh, he demurs that it was Evelyn's idea. I hate your father myself. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, But now they have to go. Mary asks him if it's just a lack of money causing estates to fail. Again, not just give, can you just say yes or no, buddy? That's all they want. So he (laughs) says usually, but really, it's because most owners don't think about income and they aren't ready to adjust their way of life. 
Mary says he has to understand what people are used to, but he says, no, they have to understand that things are going to change and that God won't be upset if the upper classes have to shuffle about a bit. Mary very clearly thinks that uh, (laughs) God will be upset. The vicar we employ told us so in no uncertain terms. (laughs) And uh, Blake says, uh, no, God will not be upset. Farming an estate is hard work, and if owners don't face up to that, they don't deserve to keep them. And uh, <laughs> Napier comes on by with his face like a fetus. <laughs> I hear you were talking about upper-class people that don't deserve things. I thought I should stop by. <laughs> uh, he does not say that, but does comment <laughs> that Mary looks quite intense. Mary says that Blake finds her people like her and Napier infuriating. Napier tries to point something out, but Blake interrupts him and says they have to go. Mary looks after them a bit flushed. Yeah, yeah. A bit, a bit worse for the wear. <laughs> Branson is driving Isabel home. She thanks him, uh, but he says it's okay because he's meeting the new pig man. Half pig, all man. Pig man in theaters this February. <laughs> I mean, we're getting Ant Man. This can't be far behind. I know, right? I would much rather watch a show about a pig because <laughs> pigs are actually very intelligent creatures. They are. No, I uh, I just loved the constant references to pigs in this episode. Oh man, so many pigs! <laughs> just pigs everywhere. Pig, pig, piggy. <laughs> Love my little piggy. Isabel tells Branson that she worries about his life away from the estate, but Branson says he has no time for that. Isabel says, what about your politics? He says, they vanished, along with that silly chauffeur chap named Branson. You know, I kind of like how they're coming back to this, even though, again, it is very clear that Lord (laughs) Julian, Baron Julian, got drunk on Sherry (laughs) and said to, you know, lady fellows, like, what, what? Let's put in this show that I make. And then he was like, oh, yeah, like all these things happen. Right, right. Uh, but I do, I mean, it makes sense because like he's gone through this trauma mm-hmm. of losing his wife and figuring out how he's going to provide for their child. And now that things have settled a bit and he's kind of on a bit more of a stable, you know, footing, mm-hmm. he's like, oh, yeah, I used to be a person. Yeah. Not just a puppet of the landed aristocracy. Yes. Well, and Isabel is helping. She says she doesn't believe that he has forgotten his politics. Uh, and she says that John Ward, the liberal MP, is speaking in Ripon tomorrow. <gasps> Ripon! That's right. <laughs> and uh, she can get them tickets. Uh, Branson says that he's not a fan of the coalition. And this would be the coalition between the liberals and conservatives that is currently running the country. And he says that John Ward is only there because Lloyd George thinks an election is coming. Uh, Isabel does doubt that Lloyd George has long, poor dear, but that they should go anyway. Branson says that Isabel had better be nice to him, or he will tell the Dowager that she called Lloyd George poor dear. And they both laugh. <laughs> yes. Back downstairs, Carson is giving the staff a pep talk and telling them that their responsibility is greater with Lord Grantham away, which I think is bullshit. <laughs> Frankly, I think it's, excuse, it's an excuse to kick back and kind of half-ass things. <laughs> here, here. Mrs. Patmore says that it doesn't matter who's up there as they toil away underground. <laughs> and uh, then Baxter very unsubtly right. asks Carson why Barrow went instead of Bates. Carson hesitates and Mrs. Hughes says, because that was his lordship's wish, is there anything else? Uh, and Baxter knows when she's beat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, McGee is sitting at her her or a writing desk in the library somewhere. Which is it. very much like the Dowager. Right. And Edith asks if she can go to London. McGee asks if there's news about Gregson. Apparently, they figured out the first night he was in Munich, he left his hotel, and that's the last anybody saw him. Uh, but he did check in. 
McGee asks why Gregson was in Germany, which is this the first time that's ever occurred to her to ask that? Anyway. Uh, look, much as we love McGee, she is not the most inquisitive member of this household. That is certainly true. Uh, Edith says he went to see the castles of King Ludwig, which, uh, to be fair, those are some bomb-ass castles. I did a jigsaw puzzle of one once. <laughs> Uh, McGee says surely that if he was attacked or set upon they would have found him by now and then gives her a hug uh, and she says she doesn't ask Edith not to worry just not to give up completely and of course she must go to London Edith asks if McGee thinks that she is bad McGee says that she's sharp tongued now and then but not bad and Edith says that sometimes she has bad feelings and McGee says that they all do but it's acting on them that makes you bad you know like your father. <laughs> right. So, uh, so yeah, she's bad then, I guess. If, I don't know. You know, it's very ambiguous to yeah. me in light of what goes on later. That's true. No. Because I don't think McGee would particularly begrudge her having had some premarital sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know. She wouldn't, yeah, like she would not recommend it by yeah, any means. Yeah, McGee is, Yeah. It's hard to say exactly how she'd react to this situation. Right. Uh, since we don't see how she reacts to this situation right, in this right. episode. But, uh, I, you know, I think Edith might be talking more about getting an abortion than uh, mm. just the fact that she is fornicated. Could be. Be that as it may, <laughs> uh, it is now time for the first of our recurring segments where our curious castellan, Tom Schneider, will be telling us about King Ludwig II. Hey! It's Tom Repeats History. That's right. King Ludwig II, I, I had always sort of understood him to be an interesting fellow based on the fact that he was known as Mad King Ludwig. <gasps> he was also It's no- a mad, 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 mad Ludwig. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Ludwig II of Bavaria, to be specific. Uh, he was also known as the Swan King and Der Marchenkönig, meaning the fairy tale king. Uh, that is a weird way to say. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like at some point, in the next century, uh, just the country of Germany is going to come out and say, uh, yeah, das language, uh, as und punkt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, just the entire German language has just been this long-running joke. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, das ist, uh, sorry about <laughs> Herr Hitler, but also, <laughs> <laughs> We all speak French. <laughs> I mean, most of them do, don't they? <laughs> Anyway, uh, Ludwig II uh, was born on August 25th, 1845. I mentioned the specific date because that's why he was called Ludwig. His parents wanted to name him Otto, but his grandfather, Ludwig I, insisted that he be named Ludwig because his grandfather was also born on August 25th, and August the 25th is the day of the feast day of Saint Louis, who was the patron saint of Bavaria, and so that Ludwig being the German version of Louis. Aha. Yes. He did not like his father, and his father didn't like him. <laughs> uh, he referred to his mother as my predecessor's consort. Whoa! Yes. That is something. Yeah. Uh, he was closer to his grandfather, Ludwig I, who is described as notorious and eccentric. His Wikipedia page is at times virtually unreadable. Like, I think they took the German page, like, for stretches of it, it's just, like, a poor computer translation of the German page. I can say that the one place that used the word eccentric was that he was an eccentric and notoriously bad poet. So. 
You mean like all poets? <laughs> Boom! Yeah. Take that, poets. That's right. He very famously had a mistress uh, born Eliza Gilbert in Ireland, but more popularly known by her stage name, Lola Montez. That's a good stage name. Yeah. Uh, and he wound up being deposed partly because of her. Again, I couldn't really tell what was going on. Um, <laughs> but, like, they really didn't like her, like everyone else. I'm sorry. You just keep saying, you know, it was unreadable. I'm just picturing it as, like, a rebus. <laughs> well, it just said, like, it was just sentences that weren't grammatically... No, no, no. I, I've been on Wikipedia before. Anyway, I should have copied one of them out because it was something about, like, squatting and the military and mass, and it was... Anyway. <laughs> um... None of that goes together. Right. Uh, Lola Montez, interestingly enough, after kicking around a while, wound up in San Francisco, settled here, um, got married. I guess whatever Lola wanted, Lola did in fact get. Apparently. And also, interestingly, uh, Swami Laura Horos uh, came around a few years later claiming to be the child of Ludwig and Lola. Uh, unclear whether she was, but she was one of the most famous mystics slash frauds in the whole spiritualism era, Houdini in particular mm-hmm. considered her one of his arch nemeses. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she did wind up getting put in jail in America for fraud and also rape and buggery, apparently because she ran some kind of spiritual school where everybody just kind of fucked all the time. That sounds amazing. I know, right? I want to go to there. She, she was listed as being involved with a West Virginia statesman, which struck me as an odd phrase to... A West Virginia statesman? <laughs> That's right. Like a congressman? I guess so. I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah. So or that... Like, just a guy from West Virginia. <laughs> right. Not at all clear. But getting back to Ludwig II. Okay, I'm like, sorry. Is, believe me, I I wanted to, like, track down what the real deal with yeah, Ludwig Yeah, FYI, cousins, was. we were like, oh, well, our segments are both going to be, like, really short this week. And mine <laughs> is going to be pretty short. But yeah. Tom was it, like, oh, this is going to be really long. Uh, well, you know, medium length. Uh, so at, at 18, Ludwig became king on the death of his father. He was very popular at the time for his youth and brooding good looks. Uh, okay, so I walked past while tom was doing this research and i immediately said that dude was hot (laughs) yes and then later tom was like oh he had brooding good looks and i'm like yeah i don't know what you think i mean right when i say he was hot he's like no and i came over and looked at a picture where he's looking like down and to his right and i felt like my panties fell off he wasn't even looking at me he was looking at some other bitch (laughs) yeah he was he was a stone cold fox ladies and interested males yeah uh interesting interested males in particular (gasps) i'll get to that in a second so he was very popular with the populace not popular with his ministers as he really did not like being king so he was like a vita i suppose um well no he was very introverted for one thing so Uh, he did not he avoided all the ceremonial aspects of being king that he could Mm -hmm. although he did actually he would ride around the countryside and like chat with people and things like that like he had no problem with that it was formal he was like you yes (laughs) uh very much so he also interestingly was the patron of wagner he brought him to court and really you know was was a big big supporter of wagner thank him for that great looney tunes Yes. No, I mean, really what he was, he was a very, like, prototypical German romantic. He mm-hmm. was, you know, like, Steppenwolf or, you know, Werther back in the day, or just this very, like, you know, brooding, introverted, creative, sentimental German guy. And when was he crowned king? What year? 
Uh, it was 1862 or something like that. So did he muck around with Jermaine de Stahl at all? Uh, he would have been a bit later because Ludwig was involved in the Napoleonic Wars. Okay. Yeah. So he was, he was about a generation later than, than de Stahl. Wait, who was? Ludwig II was about a generation okay, later. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always forget what years things happen. No, I understand. I don't know why I even bothered asking you. It's, uh, it's tough to keep track. Uh, yeah, so he was, he was generally called eccentric, even though he just really just didn't want to be king particularly. Oh, he just don't <laughs> want to be king. Uh, so fortunately for him, <laughs> uh, two years after he was crowned, the, uh, Austro-Prussian War broke out. And, and the thing about Germany, during his lifetime and for the thousand years prior to it was that Germany didn't exist uh-huh. and that it was just a mess of vaguely semi-independent kingdoms and principalities and electorates and bishoprics mm-hmm. and margravates and all this sort of thing. Right. This would explain why I have so much difficulty organizing my desk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all of it loosely under the term of the Holy Roman Empire until Napoleon came through and finally put the Holy Roman Empire out of its misery. Mm-hmm. Um, but now in the post-Napoleonic era, it was still very like vague. And so in the Austro-Prussian War, it was basically a war between the largely Protestant Northern German Confederation and the largely Catholic Southern German Confederation, which included Austria as well as Bavaria, which is the southernmost state in Germany. Um, so Bavaria signed on with Austria in that war, lost. And between that war and another war four years later, that basically wound up getting Germany united under Prussian sort of dominance mm-hmm. um, and Germany finally becoming uh, a real country. So, yeah, Ludwig, not happy about that. He boycotted Wilhelm, this would be Wilhelm I's coronation as emperor of Germany. But despite that, Bavaria did still get some special rights in it. They still had their own diplomats and their own army. Although, in theory, in wartime, the army would revert to Prussian control. Mm -hmm. That seems like a pretty big gamble for Prussians. It does, but it was, you know, it was one of those things where, like, they'd already beaten Bavaria, you know, a couple times. They felt like if they had to do it again, they could. Okay. Everybody was sort of like, all right, you you win, basically. And, I mean, it was really just a a you know, saving face sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Ludwig's still king. He just doesn't have any power or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was gay. Like, it's just, he just definitely was. He was engaged for a while to a woman who, he had a pretty close relationship with her, largely founded on their mutual love of Wagner. Uh-huh. Um, but he eventually broke it off and never dated anyone again, never had a mistress. Mm-hmm. He didn't act on it much. He was Catholic and he struggled to repress, you know, his homosexuality and, and to, to not, you know, sin. Mm-hmm. He was, he was not, you know, he was not openly gay mm-hmm. or anything like that. Interestingly enough, in Bavaria, homosexuality was not punishable and had not been since 1813, although in 1870, when they got united under Prussia, homosexuality again became a crime. Fucking Prussians. Uh, Or not, as the case may be. (laughs) Right. Apart from Wagner and the theater in general, he was a big supporter of, his big passion was castles, Mm -hmm. hence Gregson's uh, excuse. Uh, most famously, uh, Neuschwanstein and Linderhof are his two most famous castles because uh, they're mostly complete. 
Um, he had he also had a very beautiful winter garden that he built at his official residence. Uh, and I had plans for a bunch of other castles, like a uh, Ottoman style one and like a Chinese pagoda style palace. But things got cut short as he was spending all of his money on castles. He was in debt. And he was not involving himself in the government in any way except to tell the cabinet that they should ask all the other crowned heads of Europe mm-hmm. for loans for him <gasps> to build more castles. And so his cabinet was getting rather annoyed and he was feeling rather put upon by them who kept asking him to like be king and do king work. And so he was considering just sacking them all and replacing them. So they decided that they had to act first. And what they decided to do was get him ruled insane and deposed that way. So they put together a whole long report of all the things that proved how insane he was, none of which are at all convincing. Mm-hmm. Like things such as childish and sloppy table manners was one of the things listed. Or, you know, <laughs> eating outdoors in cold weather. Or, for example, sending people all over the world to research architectural details for his castles. Like... He was just bad at his job, mm-hmm. but he wasn't insane. He, I don't think he was. The report was signed by four doctors, none of whom had examined him, and only one of whom had ever even met him some 12 years ago. <sighs> Nonetheless, that was that was the report they had, and that was what they proclaimed, that he was proclaimed insane and some other guy was going to mm-hmm. be regent. Uh, he managed to get his local police to resist the first attempt to sort of seize him and depose him. Uh, also, a 47-year-old baroness who happened to be in the area beat the commissioners that had come to seize him with her umbrella. Well, <laughs> um, and again, that's he, neat. he was very popular, and there were some demonstrations in his favor, but he just wasn't decisive, and he didn't do any. He just sort of dithered for a couple of days, mm-hmm. and so his support kind of drained. And they did then did manage to seize him and take him off to Berg Castle. Okay, the next day. He was taken there with uh, Dr. Guten, who was the one of the doctors that had actually ever met him. The next evening, after he had been taken there, Ludwig and Dr. Guten uh, went for a walk around the grounds of the castle. Uh, it may have been Guden's idea. Certainly, Guden told the attendants not to come with him. They did not come back, and at 11.30 that night, they were both found dead in waist-deep water. What? Yes. The official ruling was that Ludwig had committed suicide by drowning, despite the fact that there was no water in his lungs, and he was a very accomplished swimmer, and it was only waist high. There were some signs of violence on Dr. Gooden, and nobody really knows what happened. Weird. Like, just nobody knows. There's all Dr. sorts of... Dr. Gooden wasn't so Gooden after all. Apparently not. Like, there's all kinds of theories, but, like, none of them seems to be particularly that convincing. That is what is so baffling about history. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm sure we said it before in this podcast, but there's just, like, no way to know. There really isn't. And especially since everybody involved had various motives mm-hmm. to distort everything. Mm-hmm. And so just nobody has any idea. So... I will close with one of King Ludwig's most quoted sayings that he would say, I wish to remain an eternal enigma to myself and others. Well, he did. He did. Well done, Ludwig. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you, Tom. You're that welcome. was all very interesting and horrifying. <laughs> That's right. As your segments usually are. <laughs> 
Back to the episode. Uh, Carson has a letter from Alfred. Apparently he's doing well. Some French chap with a name I can't pronounce. Uh, Arsene Avignon is not that hard to pronounce. Like, yeah. Mrs. Patmore could do it. Absolutely. I mean, she's clearly well trained, but yeah. anyway. Well, and Carson just hates everything. That's true. But I do find it odd that if he was on the stage, he wouldn't have picked up at least some pretentious French. Right. Well, I think it's more the case that he's pretending that he can't pronounce it. Anyway, he just wants to look cool. <laughs> but uh apparently, Monsieur Avignon likes Alfred. Uh, so I guess they got over that initial awkwardness from the examination. <laughs> so. Uh, but Mrs. Patmore doesn't think they need praise from the French. So trained by the French, not a big fan of them. Indeed. Daisy asks if Alfred mentions them, uh, but apparently his father is ill, so he's coming to visit his parents in Yorkshire and will stop by Downton on his way back to London. Ivy says, really? <laughs> Davy asks, why do you care? And Mrs. Patmore steps in to say that Ivy thinks it would be nice to see Alfred, and it would be giving Daisy a pointed look to stop being a bitch. Yeah. Daisy, bitch on, you bitchy <laughs> diamond. Yeah, but Patmore, so sick of this. I mean, look. We're all kind of sick of it. Oh, yeah. She's right. Rose walks up to McGee, who is apparently never going to finish that letter she's writing the way <laughs> things are going. Uh, and McGee does give her a, like, yes. Um, <laughs> well, you know, she is the one who came in to do her writing in the library. That's true. Where everyone goes. <laughs> that's true. It's the cheers of Downton. <laughs> it's the boot room of the upstairs. <laughs> uh, but Rose naturally wants to go to london she she was like across the house and she just heard london in the distance and came <laughs> a running mcgee says that in a few months she'll have been presented she'll be out and everything will be possible which don't say that to rose McGee. yeah she you don't know what's already possible for rose that girl wow yeah she makes the new women look old-fashioned <laughs> Uh, Rose says that McGee had said herself that she should already be presented at her age, and all she wants to do is see some old friends that McGee would approve of madly, and also to keep Edith company on her trip. All she wants to do is see some friends. <laughs> She's got a feeling McGee would like them to. <laughs> I don't know their names. Please don't ask. Right? Because McGee even gives her this look where she's like, oh, you're up to something, but I'm going to allow this. I think McGee keeps saying, uh, you know what? I don't like Lady Flincher. Like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Lady Flincher did steal her maid. Yeah. Maybe this is all part of McGee's <laughs> right. like long con <laughs> to get back at her and O'Brien. <laughs> it's yeah. only a matter of time. <laughs> Uh, in any case, McGee is like sighing and, uh, you know, she feels like she's getting talked into it. And Rose says, Cousin Robert did leave me in charge of fun. Uh, McGee laughs that, you know, and that's, that sealed it. Rose can go. Uh, again, because all of Lord Grantham's ideas are good ones, <laughs> particularly as regards like younger females. No. At any rate, Marion Napier on a walk directly away from Downton, right. and she asks, why is Blake so superior? Because she's got the market cornered on that as far <laughs> as she's concerned. Apparently, according to Napier, uh, Blake is just frustrated by the families who are giving in. And in many cases, the families could go on if they took a new approach instead of just watching their possessions get carted away. Mary says that they, the 
Crawley family are not doing that. But Napier says Blake doubts they'd fight if it came to it. Blake also thinks that Mary's quite aloof. Uh, <laughs> Mary aloofly <laughs> hopes that Napier stuck up for her, and he did. But Charles thinks that he's blind where Mary's concerned. And Mary's as flattered as she can be, right. uh, considering that a fetus has essentially <laughs> just declared his intentions to woo her over... You know, the funeral baked meats are still downstairs somewhere in that new refrigerator. Like, calm down, buddy. Yeah. Anyway, she says, hey, we should go inside. And they turn around and, hey, it's that uh, Greek ruin, the one where Edith hung out with fake Patrick. So, right. you know, the ruin and of rejection. Other things that happened. We I think. think she went there with Matthew. I think you're Edith right. Edith took him there. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Back when she was trying to find her tree. Yeah. So apparently their plan when they left Downton was like, let's walk about 500 yards in that direction and then immediately turn around and walk back. Oh, you know, they got a lot to do. I guess so. Edith is on the phone making an appointment for Friday at 9 o'clock. McGee comes by and asks who she was talking to. Edith says, nobody. (laughs) Just talking to nobody on the phone, as I like to do. I was going to say, that's actually not entirely out of character for Edith. (laughs) Uh, McGee says it didn't sound like nobody. Uh, Edith says that she just thought that she would get her hair done while she's in London, which McGee says... Yeah, hairdressers are insignificant, aren't they? <laughs> That's what the, Well, they're uh, servants. And they're both wearing god-awful outfits. I yeah, this both. was not a great episode for fashion. It wasn't. The servants are having their tea, and Mrs. Hughes asks, after Carson, Daisy says that he had taken a telegram up to McGee. Anna says that Lord Grantham and Thomas must have gotten a boat. Mosley comments on Thomas's good luck, and Mrs. Patmore says she wouldn't fancy a trip to America. All steaks and ketchup and hail fellow well met and... <laughs> Jimmy Kent asks what Mrs. Patmore knows about it, and she says she goes to the pictures, too. That's right. Boom! Take that, Jimmy Kent. Yeah. More like this, please, Mrs. Patmore. Agreed. Although she's been ripping on him pretty regularly the whole season. That's so. true. That's true. Carson comes in and says that Lord Grantham will sail tomorrow and be in New York on Monday. And Ivy's amazed because <laughs> she is stupid. Right. Anna tells Bates that she's robbed him of such a chance. And Bates says it's fine. It's nothing he wouldn't gladly give. Right. And then Mosley asks Baxter why Thomas told her he'd be expecting a report. And she says something and nothing. And I'm like, are you insane? Is that your deep, dark <laughs> secret? Do you just go off the deep end and start babbling? In which case, you're perfect for Molesley. <laughs> That's true. In the Dower house, Isabel comes into the Dowager's bedroom uh, and says that she had been going to bed, but something told her she should put her coat on and stop by. Uh, and the Dowager is looking real bad. Yeah. yeah. Like, we were quite concerned. Yeah, she that says... Things were about to take a turn for the inexplicable character death. Yeah. Uh, she says she doesn't feel well at all. Well, I mean, more than usually explicable as far That's as that goes. That's actually a good point. Um, so Isabel says she's going to fetch Dr. Clarkson, ignoring the Dowager's protests not to make a fuss, and says that she will send her maid up with some tea and water. In Mary's room, Anna's helping Mary get ready for bed, and Anna asks how dinner was, and Mary says it was uphill. Blake has not warmed up to Lady Mary uh, since, you know, she's basically that lady from Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mary asks Anna if Anna thinks that she's aloof, and Anna asks if she should answer truthfully or like a lady's maid. Uh, and it's very cute. Yes. Mary says, let's move on. And Anna has heard that Mary was involved in Bates' staying behind, and she's grateful. Mary says that Anna knows Mrs. Hughes asked her to intervene and told her why. And Anna says, yes, she did know. Uh, Mary asks if they couldn't find out who the man was. And Anna says he was a stranger who just ran off. Mary asks if she ought to see Dr. Clarkson. And I'm like, hasn't it been a while? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, God only knows since at, you know, seven years from now, the height of medical technology, <laughs> right. some poor animal with a woman's urine. Yeah. Uh, but Anna says she doesn't mind Mary knowing, but she just can't talk about it. Mary says that she wants to help. You've helped me, God knows, in the past, referring to carrying Mr. Pamuk's lifeless body <laughs> right. to his appropriate bed. Yeah. And Anna says she can't talk about it even to Lady Mary. A Carson steps into Hughes's parlor to say goodnight to Hughes and Patmore. Um, Patmore says that she is worried about Alfred. Carson thought that she liked Alfred. She did, but they don't want to stir the whole thing up again. Here, here. Right? Let's not do this. Yeah. Baron Fellows, we just got done with it. Agreed. Hughes asks if they can put him off just this once, but Carson doesn't know Alfred's parents' address if he ever had it. Uh, so, you know, so we can't get word to him. And Patmore says that it's a shame they'll end by mithering again. Uh, and for those who are wondering, mither, to make an unnecessary fuss moan bother you know what that probably sounds like what (laughs) back at the dower house clarkson has taken the dowager countess's temperature isabel fills him in on the case history clarkson says it wasn't ever the flu and it looks more like bronchitis however there is a lot of flu about and his nurses are run off their feet so isabel does not need any more prompting uh she is going to stay and take care of the dowager Clarkson says that it could turn into pneumonia and that they should hire someone, but no, Isabel can manage. She's been meddling her whole life for this moment. It's the <laughs> ultimate medal. <laughs> Clarkson says he'll bring some inhalants in the morning and that she should keep the dowager's temperature down. That is directive number one. Yes. In the servants' hall, Jimmy Kent says good morning to Ivy, who ignores him. Uh, he says that he only asked what a million men would ask, and she says that she only answered what a million women would answer. Boom! Although probably inaccurate. Uh, in Ray Ethel. <laughs> well, that's true. But nonetheless, even Ivy can hit a softball like that one. Oh, Jimmy yeah, Kent. that's true. Um, Carson tells Hughes that Alfred is coming at tea time, but he will meet him at the station, give him a drink, and send him on. Hughes says that at that point it'll be too late, there won't be another train. Carson says it'll just have to bite the bullet and put him up at the pub. Uh, Hughes says, won't he find that peculiar? And Carson doesn't think so. He'll just tell them that they're very busy. Uh, Hughes then goes up to him and says to tell Alfred that there's flu in the house. And Carson says, oh, you're quite a plotter when you want to be. And Hughes says it's a skill all women must learn. Which, interesting, because, you know, what Carson's plan is stupid. <laughs> right. Which, again, makes me wonder if there were more women in positions of power politically. We would avoid a lot of wars, I feel. I mean, statistically speaking, mm-hmm. it yeah, it yeah. stands to reason. Anyway, like, yeah, plot away. Backstab all you want. Just don't <laughs> actually stab anyone in the back. <laughs> right. It's not hard. Back at ye old dower house, Clarkson tells Isabel she should get some rest as she mops the dowager countess's brow. 
Isabel says that she will rest once the dowager countess is through the worst. Clarkson says he'll call the house. And uh, Isabel asks him to leave a message for Branson to say she bought the tickets for John Ward, but she can't go. And then the dowager countess asks where everyone is and continues mumbling incoherently. Not Nags's finest hour here. No. It's kind of upsetting. It's, it is upsetting. Clarkson tells Isabel to get someone to take over. And uh, she says she prefers to see it through and sits down defiantly next to the dowager countess. Yeah. In the hall at Downton, McGee tells Mary about the bronchitis and says that they should go see her. And Mary says that they should take Rose so that she can run to the shop if they need anything. Uh, but Rose is in London. Way to keep up on everybody's whereabouts, Mary. I don't particularly care for Rose. <laughs> She's a bit of a bounder. <laughs> Mary asks if they should cable Lord Grantham, and McGee says no, since after all, they can't turn the ship around. That's true. Yeah. I mean, they could. Seems unlikely. Well, and I mean, you know, I mean... <laughs> But, you know, they're not going to do it just because an old, close-to-death person is dying. Right. They're not going to do it for any reason barring, like, you know, a war breaking out. Yeah. In the village, Alfred and Carson walk toward the infamous Grantham Arms. Indeed. uh, Site of an aborted elopement between (laughs) Branson and Sybil, for anyone keeping score. That's right. Uh, Also, I believe the site of an uh, aborted... uh, Witch uh, date. Witch date. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Like witch date like j date yeah but for witches no that's good well i was thinking of it more as like a reality show oh <laughs> like poor unsuspecting people get some on witch dates I, or like other witches i can't say i thought it through cousins <laughs> have you ever been on a witch date how successful was that witch date we want to hear your story yes Alfred is disappointed that he can't look in uh, at the house, but Carson says he can't risk missing any more of his classes. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Carson's a bad liar. Yes. Uh, but Alfred agrees. Carson tells him that he's booked him a room at the pub on the house, which it is on the house. Right. Down to Nabby. Alfred says that he's very kind, and then Carson says, they'll have a drink first, you and me, man to man, which is actually kind of cute. Yeah. Like, I, I enjoy this yeah, yeah. relationship, except for every other part of it. <laughs> right. At the Dower House, the Dowager is coughing, and McGee asks Isabel if she's sure that they can't do anything to help, and Isabel is certain. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Although, I guess they did run that hospital for a while, so they might actually have some skills. Yeah, true enough, but still. I don't really think they're not really dressed for nursing. (laughs) They really aren't. Uh, Isabel says that, yeah, she'll be fine with help from the servants. Mary says it seems unfair, but Isabel says that she is a trained nurse. And then the dowager chimes in to ask why the food is so disgusting suddenly. Uh, Isabel brightly says oh, she doesn't know what she's saying. Mary would not be so sure about uh, that. As neither would I. Yeah. Uh, McGee says, we'll get out of your way. Yeah. Good call, McGee. Yeah. In the kitchen, Daisy asks why Alfred changes plans and Pat more defensively says that Mrs. Hughes wouldn't know. Even worse liars than Carson, it's true. as it turns out, are Mrs. Patmore and Mrs. Hughes. Yeah. Mainly Mrs. Patmore. Mainly Mrs. Patmore, yeah. It's really not part of her milieu. <laughs> yeah. Ivy says it's very disappointing that Alfred's not coming. <laughs> Daisy snaps at her, <laughs> saying that Ivy made Alfred's life a misery with her unkindness and her cold and vicious heart. <laughs> I just love cold and vicious heart. <laughs> like, when did Daisy turn into Miss Havisham? <laughs> 
<laughs> and who can look at Ivy and think cold and vicious? Yeah, like, you know, lukewarm and <laughs> stupid, sure. Right. <laughs> Temperate and squishy. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Hughes points out correctly, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, that Ivy doesn't deserve this. It's true. And Mrs. Hughes and Mrs. Patmore agree that they were right to put Alfred off, given that this is going on. Yeah. Back at the Dower house, Clarkson tells Isabel that she must not let the Dowager's temperature get any higher. Uh, the Dowager asks for another nurse. She says, this one talks too much. She's like a drunken vicar. <laughs> that would have been a good opening line, actually, for this episode. <laughs> it would have been. Uh, Isabel says that the family took her in and kept her close even after Matthew died, so she owes this to them. And Clarkson says to call if anything changes. Branson comes into the library and announces to Marion McGee that the pigs have arrived! The much-vaunted pigs! Hurrah! The, uh, what kind of pigs were they? Tamworth. Tamworth! Yes. The Tamworths are here. <laughs> Mary says she would have come down and seen to the pigs being delivered if she had known, but it happened while she was at the Dowager Countess's. Uh, it went fine, and they'll go see the pigs the following day. She asks Branson if he got the message about the tickets to see John Ward, and Mary asks what that's all about, and Branson says that a liberal MP is speaking, but he doesn't think that he'll bother at this point since uh, Isabel can't go. Mary says, just because we're not political, you mustn't be put off. And Branson asks if she'll come with him, and she says she'd rather go to the stake. <laughs> and McGee snorts. Everybody is having so much fun when Lord Grantham is not around. It's really like, they're true. they're smiling and laughing and cracking wise. <laughs> like, I hope, like, maybe it is Titanic, too. <laughs> maybe Hugh Bonneville's going to the bottom of the ocean <laughs> with only I- Isis left to mourn him. <laughs> Uh, Rosamond, Rose, and Edith are walking down a London street, and Rose is saying that she needs to leave to run some rather vaguely specified errands. You know, I was thinking, even up until right now, that they're all very, like, cavalier about what Rose does. Mm-hmm. But if I think about my teen years, I would go do vaguely specified things all the time. Yeah. And parents slash, you know, responsible adult parties are like enough in denial. Like they've got enough invested in their denial that they're willing to be like, Oh my God. Okay. Whatever. Right. Just like come back eventually. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is, which is what Rosamond says. Yes. Just just be back by dinner. Well, first she asks if, uh, Sir John Bullock is one of her errands, which duh, no. Right. I mean, she'd be significantly more (laughs) upset about who actually (laughs) is, but at least it's not that unsuitable person. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, Edith says to let her go, and Rose hops in a taxi, like, within seconds. Oh, yeah. She <laughs> she was not brokering any argument. Just, just like a cloud, a rose-shaped cloud of dust. <laughs> 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 Rosamond asks Edith to tell her what's the matter. She says Edith seems so preoccupied lately. And Edith says that it's Rosamond's insistence on using pretentious French words. <laughs> For no reason. Right. Preoccupé. Like, that's exactly preoccupied. Like, Tom, she lives in London. She has to seem cooler than the rest of them somehow. I suppose that's true. Edith and Rosamond walk into Rosamond's sitting room, and Rosamond asks why Edith will be out the following night, and Edith says she just doesn't want Rosamond to tell McGee. And then Rosamond says that puts her in a position of disloyal falsehood with Edith's parents, which you don't even like them. Right. Edith reminds Rosamond that she said that Edith is a grown woman and Rosamond is not a spy. 
And then Rosamond says that since the last time she was with Gregson, so it can't be a repetition of that, which is a pretty, again, low blow, Rosamond. Well. I don't think, I think this is an abusive relationship, Edith. Uh, I mean, Rosamond's always been like a bitch. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Edith starts crying and then Rosamond comes over and hugs her. Yeah. Ugh, horrible. Horrible woman. <laughs> And now we come to a scene <laughs> that is literally a parody of itself. <laughs> yes. Jack Ross is rowing Rose along a river. Uh, she is lounging in the stern. And, and is- there is lackadaisical music of 1920s jazz age debauchery <laughs> underlying the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and they, they drift to a stop underneath a bridge. Rose, uh, so happy. She, she keeps worrying that Jack will forget about her and he says he will never forget about her. But, and she's like, what? What's the problem? And he says, what can we hope to come out of all this? Which is a very savvy question. Uh huh. And Rose says, oh, can't we just be in the moment? No. (laughs) Right. Really, you really can't. Yeah. Uh, she says she doesn't know many men like him and he says he doesn't know many women like her. And Rose says, well, what is, what do the French say? Vive la différence. And Jack. That's not what they meant. Right. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, they meant viva la French. Uh, yeah, as we'll get to in just a second, <laughs> the French did actually have a lot of anti-miscegenation laws. Oh my. In place. Okay. So they very much would not have supported this. All right. Uh, Jack. Laughs at that, but he asks, will Lord Grantham enjoy the difference? Will Mary? And Rose asks if he's scared of them. He says, well, no. And she says, great, then you'll be taking me to the club tonight. But first, kiss me. I just want to slap her yeah. for being so ignorant. Yeah. But uh, whatever, she's dumb. And, uh, like, she's cute, and they kiss. This is just a little fashion backwards extra. Ooh. But... There, you know, were never really any anti-miscegenation laws in Britain. Okay. And in fact, uh, intermarriage with non-European populations began in the late 15th century. Oh, wow. Uh, with the arrival of the Romani people, and they have Indian origins. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the intermarriage was more with people of Indian and South Asian descent, just because of the nature of the empire. You know, right, men would right. go over to India, marry Indian wives, and then bring them back mm-hmm. to Britain. But... Yeah, I mean, that's basically, you know. Yeah, there just weren't any laws. Yeah, there just, there weren't so. I mean, this, whatever, you know, what they're doing is not against the law, although the show has made it very clear oh, that yeah. it is against social wars. Right, right. So we had concerns about, like, Jack Ross, like, getting shot. And then we realized that, oh, we're thinking about this, like, people who grew up in Southwest Ohio. <laughs> right. Not people yeah. who didn't live there. Yeah, because, oh, yeah, because definitely that was a death penalty offense in America up through the 60s. Yeah, and I know I saw it, but uh, the French definitely had a big problem with it, and one of the Louis passed a ton of laws about mm. uh, intermarriage, but I can't find that now, so we won't worry about it. Okay. The uh, up yours downstairs. <laughs> uh. All research guaranteed lazy or your money back. <laughs> Policy does not extend to any gifts sent to podcasters. (laughs) Back at Rosamond's, Edith says she doesn't know if she's more frightened that something's happened to Gregson or about the baby. So she has told Rosamond 
in a typical <laughs> off screen Julian Fellows yeah. uh non telling people what happened. Uh and uh Rosamond asks what Edith proposes to do. Edith says that it's hard to say the words, but she's decided to get rid of it. Down oh, Abby. Yeah. Go in there. Yeah. We We were very surprised. We were taken aback. Um Rosamond says it's terrible to hear that. And Edith says not to pretend that she, Rosamond, won't be relieved. And then Rosamond says she'll support her whatever she decides, just as Cora and Robert will. Uh, Edith says that sounds like a speech from the second Mrs. Tanqueray, but Rosamond doesn't mean it. And uh, Rosamond insists that she does. Second Mrs. Tanqueray, a problem play from the victorian era that didn't really seem that relevant to the situation well you know edith likes to just mention things that she's read anyway like certain other people i could mention in this room (laughs) uh edith asks rosamond if she'd be welcome in her drawing room have you met my niece and her charming bastard which is pretty sweet edith yeah it is sweet burn Mm -hmm. rosamond says she refuses to be shocked even though she's clearly very shocked yeah in a shocked tone she asks what Edith will say when Gregson does come back with a full explanation, and Edith says she won't say anything. Rosamond asks if she'll marry him, and Edith says yes, if he still wants her to. Rosamond says then her whole life will be based on a lie. Has she thought about that? Because living according to the truth has worked out so well for all these people. Right. Including Rosamond, mm-hmm. who's so happy in her existence. Oh, Totally. Edith says that she's killing the wanted child of a man she's in love with and she's being asked if she's thought about it. Like, boom. Yeah. Suck it, Rosamond. Agreed. Rosamond wipes away a tear, which I'm assuming must have just been a piece of dust that floated <laughs> into her eye. She says that she assumes Edith will be away for the night in some some place where they will do this. And she asks how she found it. Edith says there was a magazine in the waiting room at King's Cross. As yes. uh, pointed out by Cousin Olivia. Mm-hmm. Rosamond reminds her that it's illegal. Duh. <laughs> and asks what Rosamond will say to Edith's parents if it goes wrong. Edith says she'll think of something. Right. Which, yeah. Edith's like, uh, I'll be dead. I don't fucking care. Right. And Rosamond says that in that case, she will come with Edith. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we were surprised by this. Yeah. And I'll say, too, that, you know... Rosamond can't not be horrifically bitchy. It's just her nature. It is. But she could have handled things a lot worse than she could. Oh, she totally could so, have. I mean, she, she at least is... pretended like it was fine. Right. And um, and she is, you know, she's as supportive as she knows how to be. No, I mean, it's just, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. This yeah. scene. No, and it's just, you know, I do like, and we'll see more of this later, but I mean, Baron Fellows is really giving this all of the shades of gray that it needs, mm-hmm. you know? It's not usually a cut and dry situation. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of factors that go into deciding whether to terminate a pregnancy or to carry it to term. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just sucks. Like, she wants to have the baby with right. this guy. Yeah. She just. Yeah, but it's not. She would be fine with it. And it's just that everybody else in the society mm-hmm. would not allow her to to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Which just makes no sense. I know. Well, I mean, you just, you know, you can't demonize terminating a pregnancy and demonize not terminating the pregnancy. Well, I mean, you know, what you're demonizing is any unapproved sexual activity. Mm -hmm. And thus, if you're having the approved sexual activity and there's this result of it, then you're being demonized for having gotten pregnant because you're being demonized for having had sex. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what you do after that, it's not okay. Yeah. that's, That's the setup there. Truth. Yeah. 
Uh, in a sitting room at Downton, Blake comes in and tells Mary and McGee that Evelyn is dining with friends of his parents. Uh, and McGee says that uh, with Tom gone, she's afraid it's just the three of them. Blake says not to be afraid, but Mary asks, says that they must be. How can two brainless dullards like us hope to entertain him? And McG- this is what McGee says. Mary... That sounded a little rude. <laughs> yeah. In it's, the best McGee line oh reading God, of all time. so fantastic. This might be the best scene <laughs> in the entire fourth series. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Blake says that he can take it and asks if the pigs have arrived. Uh, Mary says yes, and she's planning to go see them tomorrow. Uh, but Blake says that he would like to see the pigs, and since he's busy all day tomorrow, he suggests that they walk down after dinner, if McGee doesn't mind, and she doesn't. Mary says it's quite a long walk, but she's okay with it if he is. I only walked 500 yards earlier today, so I should be all right. <laughs> At the Ripon Town Hall, Branson asks after an empty seat, but the woman next to it is saving it for a friend. Everybody claps as John Ward comes in. Then, as he begins his speech, literally 10 seconds after the woman has said, I'm saving this seat for a friend, right. she waves at Branson, uh, and John Ward asks if she's trying to attract his attention. And then she says, no, she just wanted that man to take the chair. And then Ward asks if she knows him. She says no. They banter a little about the romantic story, and Branson takes the seat. I already hate this homely liberal. Like, what is your deal? Is that just work in the crowd? Anyway. Uh, no, no, no. I mean the one in the crowd, the woman. Oh, okay. Very homely. Well, that's true. Uh, Ward then launches into a speech about the split between Asquith and Lloyd George and says it doesn't have to mean defeat. Branson whispers that he's wrong. The woman asks if he supports them. He says not really. He's a socialist, or he was. He asks what happened to her friend. She doesn't know, just didn't want to keep the chair empty. Uh, and then an angry mustache guy behind them shushes them <laughs> yes. for engaging in political conversation. Yes. The guy and his mustache are both angry, like I independently. What, I wonder what happened to Murray. It's <laughs> a good question. Goo goo ga tube. <laughs> uh, yep, those are definitely some pigs. Pigs! <laughs> That's right. All the pigs! Yeah, they're all over the place, uh, picking it up. Uh, Mary says that uh, if things go well with these pigs, they'll expand their pig operation. Their pigoration? That's right. Blake asks if they have a good pig man. Uh, Mary says yes, but then Blake sees a pig in peril. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he rushes towards it, and uh, apparently the pig is almost dead of dehydration. Mary says, isn't there a trough? But uh, they've kicked over the trough. Way to go, pigs. Right. Also, way to go, pig man. Right. Where is this pig man? Yeah, that we've so highly recommended. Yeah. Yeah. Like, shouldn't he be with the pigs now? Right. Communing? Like, isn't that where... Feeding off their power? Pig man's place is with the pigs, I've always <laughs> said. Um <laughs> 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 uh, Blake says that there's no time and asks where the nearest water is. Mary says that there's a water pipe in the barn and then says, should we drive them towards it with this hilariously ineffectual hand gesture? Well, you know, she's never been asked to do anything no, no, in her no. life. I mean, I appreciate it. I don't, I don't mind it. It just amused me. And Blake says that it would kill them, the sudden exertion, when they're this dehydrated, uh, that they need water gradually. So he grabs some buckets and heads off, and Mary grabs some as well and follows him. This reminds me of the scene in Farmer Boy, where everybody has to wake up at like 2 in the morning because there was an unexpected freeze, Ah. and they have to go around all of the rows on their enormous upstate New York farm and like 
get all of the plants wet so that they don't die of being frozen. Mm. It's very like that, except pigs instead <laughs> of plants. Also, they're much better dressed. Correct. Yeah, they're in full evening attire. Oh, they are. They're yeah. they're dressed to the nines. <laughs> As the town hall empties, Branson apologizes to the homely liberal for the <laughs> kerfuffle about the chair, uh, which was really her fault, not his. So sure I'm not enough. sure why he's apologizing. Well, he's the man. She says you can't blame him for having fun, him being John Ward. And then Branson says that he won't be having fun after the election. Uh, The homely liberal asks why he cares as a socialist. And then Branson says he's just a man in search of a better world. The homely liberal asks why he left Ireland. And Branson says that it was really never made very clear. The whole thing was rushed and poorly lit and edited to boot. That's right. There was a, a hand on a phone, some bushes, <laughs> and then, then suddenly I was at Downton. I yeah. don't know how that all worked out. Uh, at any rate, uh, he just says that he asks himself sometimes yeah. why he did. Uh, the homely liberal asks if he'll go back, and he says, no, it's a long story involving a felony. So <laughs> he thanks her for the seat, and he heads off. Yeah. I'm sure this is the last we'll be seeing of the homely liberal. That's right. There was some woad involved. <laughs> I also like the homely liberal as a children's book. <laughs> It's all you liberal children can hope to find in a partner. (laughs) (laughs) If you're living in accordance to your principles. That's right. Uh, In the Dowager's room, Isabel is reading. Uh, The Dowager asks if anyone cares whether she lives or dies. We care. We care deeply. We care a lot. It's really central to our podcast (laughs) that you survive. Uh, And Isabel just mops her brow. The jaunty music of rich people showing adaptability plays as Blake and Mary fill buckets of water and they're both covered in mud. Mary's heel gets stuck in the mud and she falls down and refuses to be helped up by Mr. Blake. That's right. I'm not aloof. I just hate being touched or showing any emotion. (laughs) In the Carson cave, Carson is sipping some sherry and reading a book. Uh, Hugh says goodnight and thanks Carson for containing the Downton heartbreaker. And again... What kind of odds could you have gotten that out of Alfred and Jimmy Kent, Alfred would one day be described as the Downton Heartbreaker? More like the Downton Boner Breaker. Here, here. That didn't come out right. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was moving on. Uh, Carson says that Mary is still out with Blake and wonders what he should do about locking up. Hughes wonders what's keeping them, and Carson says, nothing. Well, nothing like that. That you know of. Yeah. Uh, Mary's been married. She knows everything. Uh, yeah, and she killed that Turkish guy with her vagina. That's right. So who knows what could happen? <laughs> Indeed. That uppity minx. Yeah. In any case, Hughes says that he should just leave the front door open, and then they can lock it when they get back. Carson asks if she's frightened of burglars and says, oh, Mr. Carson, this is England. <gasps> We may have prostitutes, blackmailers, scam artists, rapists, black market profiteers, and card sharps, but not burglars. What about the Duchess? <laughs> She's still in her, like, uh, alter ego. Nobody knows yet. <laughs> well, and she made the correct choice not to rob them at Downton. That's true. That's where she meets all of her other marks. Right. Never burgle where you eat. That's the Duchess's motto. <laughs> barn of sexual tension uh blake and mary sit down mary asks if the pigs will be all right and blake thinks so he says he'll give them one more drink in an hour but mary should go mary says i'm not going they're my pigs (laughs) 
And then she shivers and Blake gives her his coat and they reenact that scene from Wet Hot American Summer. Right. Where Coop and Katie exchange outerwear. Yeah, that's true. He says it's not quite the evening they'd planned, and Mary asks what she looks like. Blake says she belongs in country life. Lady Mary Crawley, seen here to advantage, relaxing at the family seat in Yorkshire. Blake throws some mud at Mary. Mary smears some on his face, and they both laugh while the pigs snort contentedly, presumably hydrated to acceptable <laughs> levels. I think. I've seen Spirited Away, so I know what like happy pigs versus like angry, demon-possessed pigs sound like. Right. So these are not the swines of... Gadarene or whatever. No. What were those? The biblical swine? I don't know any biblical swine. You know, like Jesus put a demon in them and then they went crazy. Uh, you know what? I'm really more of an Old Testament person. Oh, uh, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was our agreement when we got married. I would cover <laughs> the Old Testament. You would cover the new. Well, then the gathering swine it is. I also liked Blake throwing mud at Mary because he's like, have you read Freud yet? Like he's around. Like that was pretty like suggestive. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it was. It seems like they'd think that Freud was awfully gauche. That's probably And he true. was German. Yeah. So, like, what could he possibly know about yeah. shows of sexual interest or aggression? <laughs> yeah. This brings us to our other recurring segment, in which our very own rural juror, Kelly, will take us backwards through fashion in Fashion Backwards. Uh, yes, we're going to cover a bit about Country Life, which Ooh. is, in fact, a magazine. It is a magazine... Which covers the pleasures and joys of rural life, as well as the concerns of rural people. Uh, It is not stated explicitly in this Wikipedia article, but I'm pretty sure it means the concerns of wealthy rural people. Uh, That sounds about right. Although it does claim to have a diverse readership, which although mainly UK-based, is also international. And I can only think that that is uh, subscribers who are from England and <laughs> want to, you know, keep up with the Crawleys, so right, to speak. Right, right. Generally speaking, at least this is, I think, contemporarily, the first several dozen pages of each issue are devoted to color advertisements for upmarket residential property, Ooh. which are one of the best-known attractions of the magazine and popular with Everyone from the super rich looking for a country house or estate to those who can only aspire to own such a property. Yeah. So it's it's Zillow. Well, or the New York Times real uh, estate section. Good point. Yeah. Which I've never read. I've never have really either, but I used to subscribe, so I'd have to throw it out. Uh, at any rate, it was launched in 1897, uh, and it also incorporated Racing Illustrated. Oh. So I think they combined. Right. And at this time, it was owned by Edward Hudson, the owner of Lindisfarne Castle and various Lutyens-designed houses, including the Deanery oh. in Sonning. I was going to say, is he the guy from Hudson News? Uh, I do not believe so. <laughs> okay. These people are very weirdly not that interesting. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, at the time, it was primarily golf and racing that provided its main content, uh, plus the property coverage, mm-hmm. uh, mainly of manorial estates, and that actually is sort of what it turned into mainly, is the architecture and right, grounds right. of these estates. And uh, Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the late Queen Mother, used to appear frequently on its cover. Oh. Uh, I guess maybe she was a golfer. <laughs> um, the the frontispiece usually features a young woman from a they, landed British family. They confused her with a horse. <laughs> Piketown. I'm trying to provide people <laughs> pertinent information. Sorry. About this episode. That's true. The frontispiece features a young woman from a landed British family, and it's well-known uh, and popularly called Girls in Pearls, uh-huh. uh, showing upper 
upper class British rural life in its most ideal light. So this would be Mary Crawley relaxing right, at the county right. seat. Uh, and so the uh, coverage. No, I like that. That like the British version of you know the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue is just some woman in formal dress, like <laughs> that's rich. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know they they're very repressed. <laughs> so the coverage includes things about hunting, shooting, farming, equestrian news, and gardening. There's also news and opinion pieces and a firm engagement with rural politics. They also include book reviews, food and wine, art and actu- architecture. And antiques and crafts. And most of their contributors and editors, even into the present day, uh, were male. But they did actually introduce in the 30s a cartoon called Tottering by Gently by Annie Tempest. Oh. Uh, so there was a woman cartoonist writing for them for a time. All right. And uh, their property section claims to have more prime agents than anywhere else. Oh, well. So, uh, good? <laughs> right. Like, who cares? <laughs> it's not like you can't go to Sotheby's. So, yeah, uh, most of the people who were employed uh, contemporaneously with the time period of Downton Abbey do not have Wikipedia entries at all. Okay. The person who was the editor at this time was a man named Peter Anderson Graham, who was a well-known nature writer. He served as editor from 1900 to, until his death in 1925. Mm. And all the real biographical information I found about him was that he uh, wrote for the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, so, yeah. good job. Great. There was a man after him named W.E. Barber, but the next person with an actual entry is a Christopher Hussey. Uh, who was actually, uh, he was quite a, well, there's actually not enough information in this article <laughs> to decide. Uh, but he was a protege of H. Avery Tipping, who was the editor of Country Life. Uh, no, I'm sorry. He was not the editor. He was the architectural editor. Oh, okay. Um, uh, but it was sort of under his tutelage that Hussey came into uh, architectural writing and also garden design. So in 1933, he took over, which is well after the current day. Sure. Uh, as far as Downton Abbey is concerned, it gets a little confusing to like, <laughs> right. Explain this. But, you know, he was the owner of a number of estates and, and gardens and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much all there is about country life. It's okay. not as intriguing as one might have hoped. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, still around today. It's been around for, you know, 111 years. That's so not bad. I know. It's longer than I've been around. That's true. <laughs> not me. I'm an ageless vampire. Well, I do. That's why we couldn't get married Catholic. Yep. Can't go inside. <laughs> I tried. Tried real hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. You're welcome. See, I kept mine short. (laughs) I said thank you. Kelly one, Tom zero. Boom. Moving on. Rose sneaks into Rosamond's house, uh, doesn't get caught like some I was going to say, she does a pretty good... I mean, you got to figure that she's got way more sneaking around experience. That is an excellent point. And uh, goes into Edith's room. Edith asks where she's been. And Rose says that she's been having such a dreamy time. I'm so curious as to whether she and Jack Ross have had sex. It's a it's a fair question. It I, seems entirely possible. It does. Well, because... She's I assume, clearly had sex before. Right. With and, that married guy. Right. And I assume he's got a place. He would have a place. Yeah. So, yeah. And probably not a well, uh, you know, like... Nobody, you know, no doorman or anything would say anything. Right. You know? One would think. I mean, 
what's the point of being a jazz musician if exactly you if you're gonna have a tattletale back? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um that's what blows my mind is that she is such a floozy yeah but she's like you know still this like well-respected she knows <laughs> well, how to keep her affairs in order better than mary that is certainly true I mean, Annie, or, yeah, or, or Edith, quite, or Sybil. Yeah, yeah, she's you know, she's like all of the best aspects of all three of them in <laughs> one little package. Yeah, you know, she's got Sybil's open-mindedness, uh, Edith's blondness, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Mary's upper crusty aloofness. Right. Uh, anyway, she asks if Rosamond was furious that she missed dinner, and Edith says she wasn't very surprised. Edith looks like she's a little green as well, nah. so she may have been vomiting copiously. Possible. Edith says that Rosamond has other things on her mind, as does Edith. Rose asks when she's going home, and Edith says that we are leaving Friday midday. And Rose says, oh, so I'm free tomorrow night. And I'm like, honey, you free every night. Yeah, she's nuts. And Edith says, why can't you just fit in and kicks her out? Which, at this point, I'm pretty team Edith in this scene. In this scene, yes. Because it's like, shut up, Rose. Yeah. But, you know, she doesn't know that Edith's all prego. <laughs> Down in the kitchen, uh, but without any servants, it's Marion Blake. And Whoa. she cracks an egg in a bowl, scrambles it, and then cooks it up using the heat of their sexual tension. <laughs> uh, also, the stove. Oh, well. Blake is very impressed, but Mary says that scrambling eggs is about all she can do. And I'm wondering when she even learned how to do that. Yeah, that's a legitimate question. Like, they, Sybil didn't even know how to turn on a faucet. Right? <laughs> they drink some wine, which Mary sus- suspects Carson had plans for since it's already been decanted. <laughs> right. But, you know, he's just a filthy servant. <laughs> Who cares what he thought? Right. Blake says he doesn't deserve the attention, and Mary says he does, as he has literally saved their bacon. <laughs> I just learned that phrase from Papa, and I can't stop using it. <laughs> Mary wasn't expecting him to be a practical farmer as well as a theoretician, and he wasn't expecting her to be a cook and a water carrier. A night of discovery says mary good discoveries says charles blake for him at least and we all just want to kick them both in their (laughs) nethers mary notes that everyone's gone to bed without them and wonders what they thought they were doing and blake says who knows ivy comes in in the most hilarious sight gag (laughs) you know she's you know going in to do whatever it is that ivy does yeah and she just stops and it's like she's had a full body (laughs) at seeing these two people in the kitchen right she just has no idea. This, this is not something she has been trained no, for. No, <laughs> absolutely not. So uh, she apologizes. And Mary says, please don't apologize. And Ivy says her name is Ivy. <laughs> yeah. Mary says that it's time for them to go to bed and asks Ivy to tell Anna she'll ring when she's awake. And uh, Mary and Blake head out, leaving most of their eggs and the wine. I'm like, you could yeah. have just bolted that wine. You got all this adrenaline from pig saving. <laughs> You're going to need a little bit of a sedative. True enough. But, uh, you know, it would be awkward for both them and ivy for things to go on any longer well and moreover you know who cares what they thought you were doing has anna just been sitting awake this whole time (laughs) like waiting for you to ring Uh, that's a fair question i don't know how this works yeah me neither a rosamond and edith get out of a taxi edith says that they're in the right place and rosamond says it doesn't look very right it looks super right it It looks looks exactly like where rich people would go get an abortion yeah like it looks nicer than our building yeah (laughs) that is exactly right and i firmly believe that our building was an opium den and an abortion clinic in the 1920s (laughs) so there you go what we now call the elevator was the dumb waiter we would like to give props to the location scout despite rosamond's misgivings well you know she wouldn't be happy with it no matter what 
you know, it could be at Buckingham Palace <laughs> being performed by the Queen Mother herself. <laughs> Although at this point, there would be no Queen Mother. I guess so. Because Victoria would have been the Queen Mother. Right. And she's dead. No, yeah. wait. Are we in no, a different we're, king? No, we're on to George. So I don't know if Alexandra, because Edward VII is dead. So it's George the fifth mm-hmm. now uh with i believe queen mary but so queen alexandra yeah okay might still be alive and would therefore be and the practicing uh and practicing her obstetrics ab- her abortion yeah. uh, practice <laughs> uh look of all the queens and consorts in british history she would be the most likely one to do it right <laughs> these gold-plated forceps were passed down from queen elizabeth the <laughs> first Virgin Queen, my ass. <laughs> Woo! Yes. And I stole these stirrups from the saddle of one of Edward's lovers. <laughs> uh, Edith tells Rosamond to ring the bell marks Thompson. She does, and uh, they are shown into a uh, fairly poorly lit waiting room. Yeah, they really, uh, the staff at this clinic has gone out of their way to make it seem as terrifying as possible. Indeed. You know, maybe like brighten it up, some flowers around the place. Come on. Yeah, now. maybe paint it a different color than gray. Right. These people are having a bad enough time. <laughs> yeah, they don't need the help. The woman that shows them in says the doctor will be with them very soon. Rosamond says as long as he is a doctor. At this point, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like, like are you going to ask for his papers? Right. Anyway, Edith tells Rosamond that she doesn't have to stay, but Rosamond says she does. Edith says that she loves Gregson and she would have loved his baby, but she just can't see over the top of this. Uh, Man, it would be super cool if Laura Carmichael got nominated this season. Yeah. But it won't happen. Right. Because much like Edith is frequently eclipsed by Mary, (laughs) Laura Carmichael is always eclipsed by Michelle Dockery. It's true. Sad but true. Um I mean, not that she isn't eclipsed by Michelle Dockery in my own mind, but anyway. Well, you're, you know. (laughs) I have a history. Anyway, she yeah, she is great in the scene. Uh, She says that she doesn't want to be an outcast, some funny woman living in Maida Vale people never talk about. Uh, Maida Vale being a uh, upper class, but kind of low end of upper class neighborhood in London from what I can figure out. So like Park Slope before it got Chi-Chi? I guess so. (laughs) Uh, She says... Uh, Sybil might have brought it off, but she never could. She says that Rosamond thinks that she is being very selfish. Rosamond asks her not to put words into her mouth, uh, that she doesn't know what she thinks, except that she wishes it were over. Edith says that she can't go back to the nursery, not with Mary's son and Sybil's daughter waiting there. And, you know, with the very significant phrasing of that, you know, not George and Sibby, mm-hmm. but Mary's son and Sybil's daughter. Uh, look, watching this, we're just like... Yeah mouths agape crying this is horrible it's it's really horrible um and rosamond says not for a while edith says that she doesn't she thinks not forever will she be able to do that uh they then hear a woman crying and edith goes over and looks through the partly open door to the examination room so this is clearly pre-hippa here that they're just kind of leaving the door open although that looked almost like a waiting area to me Possibly. later in the scene it's hard to, it's yeah. it really is poorly lit like it's hard to see what's yeah, going that on. is true um but she sees the crying woman who is sitting and the doctor is there next to her sort of standing up and like not she doesn't see anything particularly horrifying in and of itself it's just you know standard but 
In any case, Edith turns, and as the nurse is coming in to tell her that the doctor is ready, she bails. She says that this was a mistake, and she, she bolts out. And Rosamond says, well, it seems it was a mistake, and, and follows after her. And the doctor and nurse look confused, and I'm like, why do you look so confused? This has got to happen to you on a weekly, if not a daily basis. Agreed. Agreed. Back at Rosamond's, Rose is protesting that she has arranged plans for the night, and Edith tells her to unarrange them, because I'm telling you to. Yeah. Uh, Edith's got her backbone back, which is nice to see. It's true. Rosamond backs her up, and Rose sulks out, saying, <laughs> Rosamond asks if Edith will tell McGee, and Edith says she supposes she'll have to at some stage. Uh, presumably the second trimester is when you really can't <laughs> right. like, hide it any longer. McGee's not the smartest person in the world, but she's not that dumb. Yeah, she's had several sex- successful pregnancies. <laughs> Indeed. Like, she's going to catch on. Robert, on the other hand, probably you'd be able to get through the whole thing. <laughs> like He would just be too uncomfortable to even like notice. <laughs> Rosamond tells Edith to let her know she wants her there when she tells McGee, and she's certain there's a way forward, which she says in such a way that demonstrates how uncertain she is. Yes. Uh, but Edith says it doesn't matter because the decision's been made, and, you know, they'll just have to take it as it comes. Yeah. Mary comes into the library and asks Branson and Napier if they have heard about their adventures. Uh, Branson is very impressed by their adventures. McGee comes in. She's glad to see Mary, and Mary says that she slept late. McGee asks if she's remembered that Gilly is coming. Uh, Mary did not know that Gilly was coming. Apparently, he is going to fish the spay and ask to stay the night, the spay being a river in Scotland. Uh, McGee says she's sure she told Mary. She obviously did not. Mary would totally have remembered if Gilly was coming. Yeah, this is Gilly. Come on. (laughs) Uh, Blake asks if Gilly used to be Tony Foyle. McGee says, yep. And uh, Blake served with him in the war. They were on board the Iron Duke with Jellicoe. Way to go, Jellicoe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jellicoe was the uh, chief admiral during World War One. Mary asks then if they were at Jutland, the biggest naval battle of World War One, and uh, they were. McGee says, well, you'll see him tonight because she don't care about Jutland. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she says she had tried to put Gilly off, but he wouldn't be put off, and Mary says not to worry. Napier follows Mary out into the front hall and says that he hears she was the heroine of the pig drama. That's right. Mary, queen of the pigs. <laughs> Mary asks if Blake thinks she's not aloof now, and Napier says she isn't, but it's increased the competition for Napier. Mary sighs, but doesn't mean it. Yeah. And I don't care how much she's enjoying this. It is real gross no, no, of no. those guys. I'm not saying it's not gross of those guys, because it is. It totally is. I just am amused by how much Mary is pretending to not like it. Well, it's like back in the Lavinia days when she said, you know, Mary would love to be queen of the county. Yeah. And that just was never Lavinia. Yeah. And I mean, really, that's what Mary really was in love with all along. That's, that's very... And now she gets to be queen of the county and doesn't have to deal with stupid Matthew anymore. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, in the kitchen, Alfred comes in and is like, what's up, everybody? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Hughes walks in at that moment and is, of course, rather taken aback. Alfred says that he heard about the flu, and Daisy says, what flu? And Hughes, uh, caught off guard for one of the few times in this uh, episode, right. says that, uh, well, uh, 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 Mrs. Patmore and I think we might be coming down with the flu, don't we? And Patmore's like, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Crazy, 
Daisy says they look well enough, but Hugh says that looks can be deceptive and there is an awkward pause. Uh, Ivy says that they're so pleased to see Alfred, aren't we, Daisy, Jimmy? <laughs> and everybody's like, no! <laughs> right. Daisy says that they've missed him. Jimmy says, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't Jimmy Kent have his own show? I feel like that show I would enjoy, you know? Jimmy Kent, British gigolo. <laughs> European gigolo. That's true. <laughs> um... Alfred asks if Ivy has really missed him, and she quite enthusiastically says she has. Like, she is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the presence of Alfred. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alfred says that if he thought she meant that, he wouldn't be able to leave. And Patmore immediately rushes over and says, well, then it's all the sadder that you have to. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, and she starts to drag him out, but he pops back in to apologize for not coming last night. Carson was being over-careful. And Daisy, deadpan, says, yes, I'm sure that's what it was. Boy, what a time. Daisy's actually getting savvy here. Yeah. Also, Daisy, you own a farm. (laughs) Where no one has the flu. (laughs) I mean, as far as we know. Uh, Maybe that's why we haven't seen Mr. Mason. (laughs) (laughs) It's a shame Dr. Clarkson has been so busy with that gardener at the Dower House. He could have treated me for this flu. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, Carson then comes in and also asks Alfred what he's doing there. Hughes says, oh, he thought he'd look in. And Patmore, who's really kind of given up on this whole thing at this point, says, we warned him about our flu. <laughs> Carson just sighs and walks into the hall to have a little huddle up with Hughes and Patmore and just complains that now he still has you know, all this and you're still stuck with the bill at the pub. Hughes says that she's sure he doesn't grudge Alfred a decent dinner, which appears to not be the case. He clearly does. Uh-huh. And Patmore grudges Alfred the tears and heartbreak that'll flavor my puddings for weeks to come. <laughs> Uh, and back in the kitchen, Alfred tells Ivy that she's given him somewhat to think about, and he will. Do you think he loves her more than any pig? <laughs> That's saying, Summit. <laughs> Pretty you flans of black... You flans? <laughs> All you flans of black out there. This is going well. <laughs> Nothing goes together like black adder and caramel. Yeah, that's true. Back in the Dowager Countess's bedroom, Isabel says it's good news if she's really hungry, and the Dowager Countess says she's not ravenous, but she wouldn't mind a piece of toast. So Isabel heads out before the Dowager Countess can finish asking why she doesn't just ring for it like a normal person. And the Dowager Countess asks Clarkson to take that mad woman with him when he leaves, and Clarkson says that that mad woman has stayed by the Dowager Countess's side for two days and two nights without sleeping or eating, which is impressive. It is That's impressive. That's hard to do. Yeah. But like, I guess if you're a nurse, you get used to it, or you're on amphetamines. Yeah. Maybe Isabel is on it. Is she... It's pretty manic. She is pretty manic. Mm, hmm. I'm uh, I'm interested in this theory. Yeah. All right. Maybe... And no, and she stopped taking them when Matthew died. Ah. She thought she like wanted to like live an authentic life, but right. then it turned out no. No. She, yeah. she wanted to... She loved the crank. <laughs> yeah. Gets her meddling going. <laughs> 
the dowager countess says that there were nurses there. She remembers one wiping her brow, and then Clarkson says that that was Isabel. The dowager countess asks about McGee and Mary, and Clarkson says that they offered, but Isabel felt she had more knowledge, which the dowager countess does believe. Yeah. This is, you know, we've had this fight before. <laughs> Isabel comes in and says they'll bring up toast and tea, and Clarkson tells Isabel it's time that she had a break. So she says that she'll go home and have a bath and asks if she could come back later. And after a dramatic pause, the dowager countess assents. Isabel says that she can stay all evening and perhaps they can play cards. Uh, then she heads out and then Dr. Clarkson tells the dowager countess that she will be rewarded in heaven. And she says the sooner the better, which seems a little extreme for someone who's just like, recovered from a for potentially... For someone who could well be in heaven right now right. if things have gone a little differently. Yeah, the writing here I don't think is at its strongest. Agreed. In the servants' hall, Green walks in. Ha! Yeah. Uh, and he's smilingly says he thinks I'm in the right place, eh? Mostly is pleased to see Mr. Gillingham. Patmore says, oh, you've come to shake us all up again. And Jimmy Kent asks if there will be a racing demon again. And Green says, only if they're up for it. Hughes, sadly still unable to kill him with her eyes. She is trying mightily, though. Yes, yes, indeed. Anna comes in with a question for Baxter, but stops short mm-hmm. before gathering herself and, and finishing asking Baxter for some white thread. Mostly asks Green what he's been up to, and Green says he'd better not tell them too much. He doesn't want to shock the ladies. Uh, and then he twirls an imaginary mustache, yeah. basically. Yeah. Mary is coming downstairs when she is pleased to see Gilly. <laughs> who hoped she doesn't mind his turning up. He says it's the perfect stopping point between London and Inverness. Which I, I looked at a map. It seems about right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't mind at all, clearly. And Gilly says he's missing her. Mary says it sounds like the needles got stuck on the phonograph of inevitable disappointment. <laughs> and she asks how Mabel is. And Gilly uh, doesn't want to answer. And he says he hears Blake is there. Mary explains Blake Steele. Right. Gilly tells her not to get to like Blake better than him. And Mary says no chance of that, even though clearly she already <laughs> right. likes him better than anyway. <laughs> They'd hardly spoken until yesterday, and then Gilly asks what happened. Mary says their pigs arrived, and as usual, Blake was, anyway, what does it matter? Like, she's very, oh, I definitely don't like him, but, like, also, this guy already was, like, you know, shit or get off the pot, as as, far as I'm concerned. Right. And as usual, Blake was dashing and heroic and ever so assertive. (laughs) uh, Anyway, what does it matter? (laughs) Uh, so they walk into a drawing room, and Gilly very happily greets Blake, like, you know, they do. Yeah, they've they, got a genuine report. Yeah. Uh, and he asks what sort of report he's working on, and he says that he's it's the health of the landed estate, my usual stamping ground. Branson asks Edith if she got everything done in London in a making conversation sort of way, and Edith says, why do you ask? And Branson confusedly says, no reason. Yeah, Edith needs to take a hit. Yeah, and Edith is like, oh, I'm being very obvious and gathers maybe she got into isabel's meth (laughs) uh mary walks up to blake who is just wrapping up the pig story pigs and prejudice (laughs) uh uh, by saying that they by the end of it they looked like they'd been wrestling in mud and gilly asks mary if they had been and she says no but it's always nice to leave something for another time god just do it already it's the suspense really is terrible (laughs) and i do not hope that it lasts (laughs) Uh, Gilly and Blake sit down. Gilly asks what Downton's chances are, and Blake says that they're bright, since Lady Mary and the family mean to give it everything they've got. Gilly uh, says that if Mary's giving it everything she's got, then that's quite a lot, and Blake agrees. 
Uh, and McGee thankfully brings this conversation to a close by announcing dinner. Right before any fisticuffs break out. <laughs> uh, Green is in, you'll never guess, huh? the boot room. Oh my God. Uh, Mrs. Hughes walks in and closes the door. And then Green asks what he can do for her. She says he can do nothing for her because she knows what he's done. And if he values his life, he should stop playing the Joker and keep to the shadows. And man, Mrs. Hughes is so great. She Missy. is very, very great. Phyllis Logan for all the awards. Here, here. Green sits down and says he's afraid he and Anna were a bit drunk that night. So, yes, they were both to blame. And Mrs. Hughes says, no, Green was to blame and only Green. Green asks if Bates knows. And Mrs. Hughes says, not that it was him. And Green says, thank you. Mrs. Hughes says, don't you dare to thank me. Yeah. She says she has not kept silent for his sake, but he resumes smugly cleaning a boot and yeah. nobody's i'm like did that boot give you its consent <laughs> definitely it's not very upsetting no it is very upsetting and his like his whole demeanor like no it's I mean, very uh bateman-esque yeah yeah isabel and the dowager are playing cards in her room and the dowager has moved to a chair rather than being in bed still uh isabel says she believes that's gin and the dowager says oh so it is i'd forgotten what a good game this is how long does it go on for and isabel says oh ages and the dowager says oh goody goody and it's not clear to us whether she's being sarcastic right like we really don't know how to read that scene yeah that was very Very, yeah just so i guess we'll have to see in future episodes if the dowager really likes isabel now right or what is going on yeah in the servants' hall, Hughes tells Carson that Alfred has relit the taper yes. uh, of everyone's tizzies and affections. <laughs> and Carson says that to be young is to have your heart broken. Uh, yeah, shut up, Carson. <laughs> Jimmy Kent complains that he had to clean Blake's jacket since he doesn't have his own valet. Which, which yeah. hey, shit heel. Yeah. Get your own valet. I don't care who you are. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be wrestling in mud. Well, like, and if you're going to be staying at a landed estate well, for enough. an extended period of time, like, yeah. at least get a temp. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how valeting works. Right, you know. Me but either. it seems like you ought to be able to get a temp. Well, you Fucking, can. And why is Jimmy doing it? Make Mosley do it. He actually knows how to valet. True. You can definitely, definitely get a temp because Jeeves uh, would sometimes have vacation. Right. Yeah. So Anna is staring at Green and uh, Jimmy Kent calls her name because he was complaining to her about the jacket. She apologizes. Bates says that Blake's evening shoes were also quite a challenge. Uh, Baxter tells Green that she wasn't working there for Nellie Melba's performance, unfortunately. Uh, she has a lot of respect for Dame Nellie. And Green says she must be joking. Daisy, who happens to be setting down a serving dish near Green, says that she thought Melba had a beautiful voice. And Green says she was screaming and screeching as if her finger was caught in the door. He couldn't take it for one more moment. So then Baxter asks what he did. And then Green says he came downstairs for a bit of peace and quiet. And then says, oh, is that more of the cauliflower cheese? Which, which gross. Cauliflower cheese? It's like, just, no, it's a, it's a casserole with cauliflower and cheese. Like, you know, like broccoli and cheese. It's like that. Ugh. Well, sorry that you hate cauliflower. No, it's not that. I'm, I hate broccoli and cheese, and I like broccoli. Oh. I just find that mixture, like, weird and unpleasant. Interesting. Sorry. Note to self. <laughs> uh, Anna, Bates, and Baxter all trade quiet glances, and we end with Bates staring suspiciously at Green, yeah. which Green... Again, we're not trying to help out any rapists. <laughs> right. But if you don't want... Maybe he does want to get caught. I don't know. It's I, really yeah, weird, it but is. it's like, why would you bring all this up now 
At any rate, that yes. is the end of the episode. Yes, it is. It remains to be seen what will be happening right. with Mr. Green. Yeah. Ah. Uh, but that is for next week. Agreed. Which brings us to the Abbey Award. Hooray. First up, we have Best Evasion. Uh, and that is going to Bates, who evaded going to America. As we all wish we could. <laughs> uh, then we have Worst Overbite. That's going to an unusually uh, pedestrian person, uh, angry mustache guy at the liberal MP speech. He was very overbiting. He was. He was. That was an uppity mustache yeah. if I ever saw one. Oh, yeah. He's, he's got some upward mobility uh, <laughs> aspirations. Yeah. Worst decision? Uh, we're going to give that one to Green mm-hmm. for not knowing how to, like... Shut up. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this brings us to the Gibson Girl Award. Actually, this week it is the Gibson Guy, as uh-huh. we are going to give it to Jack Ross. Despite only appearing in one scene, I, it's a bit cumulative because he is rocking the pinstripes. He really is. And that's extremely unusual for anybody on this show. Yeah. And, so, uh, Jack and, Ross. Yeah, definitely. Nobody else was that great. Uh, I mean, Edith, I mean, I think intentionally not looking good. Yeah. Um, Rosamond was very beige. It was just, it was kind of a beige episode fashion-wise. Mary yeah. wore purple exclusively. Yeah. It was just, it was not fun. Yeah, it wasn't. We almost gave it to uh, Charles Blake. For being right. so uh, attractively disheveled and covered in mud. But <laughs> yeah, Jack that, Ross won in the end. That's right. I mean, that was more intentional fashion. So. Indeed. Uh, which brings us then to the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. The Backy. Uh, and we're giving that one to the homely liberal, <laughs> whose name we do not know. Uh, also very beige. But in a way that was more offensive yeah. than Rosamond's beige. Like Rosamond's beige was at least, you know, a rich, yeah. deep beige. This woman appeared to want everyone to think that she was just some disembodied hair, <laughs> like bobbing around. Possibly. Uh, next we have this year's award, the Cutest Baby Award. Uh, yeah, no babies Sadly. in this episode. Uh, and it seems rather un, you know uncouth to give it to edith's fetus right so we're going to give it to ivy for her adorable <laughs> uh seizure in the kitchen which is very much the sort of thing a baby might do yes we feel a baby you know seeing rain for the first time or for something. example yeah uh, finally everybody's favorite award the maggie smith scale of maggie smith's well uh, not a great episode. No. Writing-wise or doing stuff-wise. Right. So we're going to give her a one we for are, being we are pretty much indisposed. Uh, you know, I mean, c- circumstances out of her control to an extent, but nonetheless, particularly when we have no idea what the last scene was supposed to mean. Right, right. That really didn't help. Still, we're glad she's recovered. Absolutely. Uh, and look forward to seeing her hopefully return to uh, full steam next week. Exactly. Well, that about does it for episode seven. So, uh, until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. luncheon out.